2: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts
0: and Podcast One. If you like my show, you're going to love Revenge of the Jocks with Martellus Bennett. Join Super Bowl champ Martellus Bennett as he covers a broad spectrum of what it means to be a creative, to be an activist, and an overall culture-shaping world changer. He's no one-trick pony. Listen free to the show each week exclusively on Podcast One or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is a continuation of the division capsule series that I've been doing for Real Jam Radio. This one is on the Northwest Division, a really fascinating one, even though not that much happened in terms of personnel changes other than the Nuggets, but a lot of different basketball analysis, a lot of different things to talk about. And it had two great people on. Same two from last year, for those of you who love that podcast. David Locke, Radio Voice of the Jazz, the Grand Poobah of the Locked On Podcast Network, and Adam Mares, who hosts the Locked On Nuggets podcast, but also runs Denver Stiffs and has done some great work for Nylon Calculus and other places. So we talk about the Northwest. We talk basketball theory a little bit as well and kind of how we see all this stuff shaking out. And again, it's an offseason review and a regular season Preview. So we go into both of those topics. And this episode is brought to you by Bet Online. You can go to betonline.ag and use that podcast one, the number one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is awesome. Quip amazing electric toothbrush. Go to getquip.com slash real to get a free refill pack on your order, which is fantastic. And then Car, great place to buy new and used cars. We joked before this podcast that it wasn't going to be super long. Then we ended up going down a million different rabbit holes. It is an hour and 40 minutes. It is a behemoth, but a good one. And I, I, I thought it goes in some really interesting directions. So even if you're not the biggest Northwest Division fan. I think there's a lot that you can get out of this in terms of basketball theory, and we were pushing each other and thinking about different ideas, so I hope you really like it. Well, thank you guys so much for coming on. Should we talk about Donovan Mitchell? I'm sure <laughs> we will. I mean, Mr. Donovan Mitchell's going to score 15 points a game, and I haven't gone back to listen to the audio because I, I I know I said one stupid thing and one smart thing. The stupid thing I said is I'm like kind of like, good luck with that, but the smart thing was if he does that, he's going to be a contention for Rookie of the Year, and that part ended up being true i mean man that that ended up being one of the biggest stories of this division last year
1: i've never been more wrong on a prediction and been classified as more right why were you wrong I
0: Because he, he averaged
1: 20.
0: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you said he would average at least 15, I think. I, I, I th- did. So, yeah. so then that is still technically right. I mean, you're it's it's not closest to the pin. You still got it right, though, but that, that's fine. And th- there's this is going to be an interesting conversation with us because my theory on it is that we're probably going to spend more time than usual on these on the season preview part than the off-season review part because not a ton happened. The question that I always do to start with this, which is weird in the Northwest, is who got better and who got worse
2: this was a tough one to answer i think because the nuggets i think got better um a lot of these teams got better by virtue of their best players are getting better every offseason i think oklahoma city gets better by i mean some of this is do we quantify the injuries i mean they get better by by regaining robertson to their lineup i think uh cutting out carmelo anthony i think there's more clarity on that roster and who they are and what the roles will be. I think Paul George will be better. And then Utah got better for largely those same reasons, factoring health. I think they'll be healthier. I think all three of those teams had below average health last year. So if they just have average or better health this year, they will be better. Uh, And you could even say Minnesota, even though they didn't do anything of value, but Carl Anthony Towns is their, maybe, you know, either their best or second best player, and he's a year older. So those are the teams i I look at, but I think and i'm a lot of my answers are going to be Homer <laughs> answers for a lot of this stuff because I think Denver had the most moves this off season, so I think they'll probably be talked about a lot. but I do think that the amount of young talent they have as key contributors on their roster all getting a year older makes them better and and I like some of the moves they made.
1: I think when you – the teams that got better seem to have gotten, at least statistically, if you look at just the numbers, got better by subtraction. Wilson Chandler in Denver was a player who I think you loved the concept of, but the actual result statistically is not what we believe him to be. Carmelo Anthony leaving Oklahoma City I think makes them better. Uh Utah's the exact same team as they were a year ago and then, you know, I don't think Minnesota and Portland probably got better for any of their moves, but I do think we probably have and actually, you know, the one I think that on Utah to include in this conversation is Numerically, Joe Johnson was really a tremendous donut around the bat for the Jazz when he was with them, and they moved him at the trade deadline. And their defensive rating when Rodney Hood was on the floor last year was about yeah. a 107, which is just hard to fathom. So I think when you look at the th- teams that got better, they got better by subtraction, and that is the, the, the loss, Carmelo, Wilson, Chandler, and then the moves of the trade deadline by the Jazz I think were much better. Yeah. Sure than anyone realized at the, when they happened.
2: And let me just say real quick about all three of those teams, Nuggets, Thunder, and Jazz, I feel like they're entering this season with a lot more clarity about who they are. And that speaks to the moves you talked about, addition by subtraction. But part of why that works is they know what they're trying to do. And I think the whose role is what is a lot more clear to find than it was at this point last season.
0: Well, yeah. And along those lines, you could think of a team like Utah here where Donovan Mitchell just had his emergence over the course of last season where they used last season to figure out what their best. Lineups were, who they were, everything like that. And so they start the season hopefully more in line with where they finished last year so like Utah I mean to me they were a much better team at the end of last year than they were at the beginning and so that makes them better but in terms of from a talent perspective like if we were ignoring internal improvement things like that this is a strange division for it I mean basically Minnesota swapped Nemanja Bielica and Jamal Crawford for Anthony Tolliver like that is one of the smallest (laughs) one of the smallest net off seasons in terms of like single year impact that I've seen and I like Anthony Tolliver I covered him when he was young in the league and, and I think he's a good player for them, but you see that kind of thing, and Oklahoma City had a lot of turnover, but it was mostly turnover on the margins I mean there was you know getting yeah. new ones as a backup center, the whole shooter thing, which we'll talk about in a little bit all those type of things and so I think that the addition by subtraction idea is really interesting, and for a lot of these teams that could be true. But, yeah, in terms of, like, if you were to write this, like, oh, they lost X number of talent points and added this number for a lot of the teams to be there. And then the, the most interesting kind of, because I think this is the place to talk about who got better and worse for it, for Portland, was the decision, which looks a little bit better now, to let Shabazz Napier and Pat Connaughton go, and Ed Davis to a point, though I think that negotiation was a little bit different. And Portland has made a bet over the last couple of years that they've been able to replace these guys. I mean, it was the same thing when they kept Pat Connaughton last year. It was like, oh, what are they going to do with him? And then they let Pat Connison go. They brought in Stauskas, which I hate, but you know, Jake Lehman has looked better. They don't really need as much there because they drafted two shooting guards. So I'm intrigued by what Portland did from that perspective of the idea of kind of betting on their front office, but they didn't bet on their front office in the way of identifying you know talent or getting underneath the electric tax or anything like that. They just kind of swap some guys around.
1: What's the track record that makes you feel comfortable betting on their front office?
0: Oh, it's, it's not so much that it's, uh, oh, I forgot to say the other reason why is because if their other guys stay healthy, it just won't matter as much because if Dame and CJ play, you don't need as many. No, it's, well, Wade Baldwin looked good. I like Wade Baldwin. I thought that he, you know, I'm not exactly sure what his role is on a successful NBA team. You know, he was better distributing in summer league than I expected. And Simon's looked intriguing, but, but you're right in terms of their front office, they've made a series of of weird kind of moves. I think they've actually been worse at the big stuff than the small stuff other than the Nurkic trade. But you're right, though, that there is a, a very mixed record for Olshay.
1: I guess Adam's leaving that to me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing on that. I mean, I'm kind of – the one. my only Portland
2: take is – Last season, every team in the Northwest Division got really hurt except for Portland and Portland won the division. I don't, I'm not that impressed with their roster. I do think they either stayed put or got worse marginally. And, you know, if they have the same health luck and, and other teams have a little bit better, I, I to me, they're an outside Fighting to get in team, even though I think they're good. I
1: just there's a lot of good teams in the West. Terry Stotts does some things defensively that he doesn't get credit for. They're the number two team in the league denying the corner three. They're the number two team in the league denying the three overall. They're the number one team in the league defending around the rim. Uh, I think there's a fundamental defensive philosophy that Terry Stotts has that has allowed them to be much better than anyone realizes, and I think that w- that sense will continue. You don't look at Dame C.J. Nurkic. Harkless, Aminu, and think to yourself, wow, elite defensive team, but they're they're doing what I think is the most one of the most important aspects of defense which is playing it from a money ball standpoint they do that as well as any team in the league there's something to what's being taught in Portland that will continue regardless of who the personnel is
0: yeah and they've been able to to make it work in some ways I mean they don't have the same kind of defense as the Jazz but both those teams have avoided some of the like switch heavy elements that have led to a lot of other successful defenses like Portland does it a little bit with scheme I mean Utah does it with personnel and you have Rudy Gobert and some of their other defenders, I think Utah's overall defense is underappreciated. You know, everybody else, I think like the job that Ingles does defensively. If I, I'm intrigued by favors. You know, we'll see where Donovan Mitchell goes, but I still like a lot of what he does there. And Rubio's been an underrated defender for almost ten years now. So can I de-
1: can I derail this conversation into the number one thought I have on the whole league this year? Sure. The best defensive teams during the regular season last year were almost all drop big teams. Okay, Utah. Philadelphia, San Antonio, Boston's a little bit of both with Horford. They're switching. The playoffs became exclusively a switch game. What is the league going to be this year? I like this
2: question, and I think it leads into another thing I really want to get a, to a little bit later on, but I can answer yours here, is I still think it's going to be a drop league, because in the regular season, that's the easiest to do. There's things that are successful for 82 games that you don't have to adjust game in and game out for, and I think in the playoffs, that's where you, you know you, you make those switch five guys, switch heavy, whatever game plans, but in the regular season, just being able to bl- uh, drop Rudy Gobert, that's easy to do and everybody else can fall in line and he can clean up for so many other mistakes and when teams don't have they only have 24 hours to kind of game plan for it i don't I, you, you know you can't adjust your offense that much so i think it'll continue to be the exact same and i think the playoffs will continue to be the exact same and i have a take we can save the, i want to save it for a little bit later but i have a take about this in centers and in particular about centers the best defensive centers in the nba being played off the floor at least to a small extent in the playoffs
1: next year and what that might mean I thought it was also going to be a defensive center take to defend Jokic again. <laughs> no.
2: Well, well, it is. I mean, it does play <laughs> into him. It, it plays into him in this regard. I mean, everybody has been saying for a couple years now, you know, you well, you ha- your center has to be the rim protector. It has to be this guy. But we saw with Embiid. We saw with Gobert. We saw with Capella. The best of the best. And it's still, you know, teams had to adjust and give different looks and play those guys less in, in key moments. Now, those were coming against the best teams in the NBA. But it, it just makes me wonder, are we sure that that, that – virtue that everybody has seemed to agree upon, are we sure that's the case, especially when your defensive beasts as centers are so one-dimensional on offense? Outside of Embiid, who's a lot more dynamic.
1: These are all intertwined, actually, because... So the reason you have to take the center off the floor is if they can no longer make an impact offensively. Right. And the moment they can no longer make an impact offensively is when you start switching. Right. Because then the what all three of those guys you mentioned do so well is roll to the basket. Gobert and and Capella are huge offensive threats because their verticality and their their gravity, shall we call it? Their verticality is at, at the rim and their gravity is at the rim. So that's why the Jazz took more corner threes than just about anybody else in the league is because he rolls. But the minute everyone's starts switching every single play, now you can't roll to the basket with the same ability that you could when people are dropping the big and, and doing that. And so that's where Capella and Gobert start to have a hard time. That's only against the elite of the elite. So it goes back to what you were saying, Adam, that you know you still drop the big in the regular season. I will add on to this now, maybe taking a little bit of a different direction. I go back to a conversation with Igor Kakashkov that I had before the playoffs started where Igor said to me, here's the one thing that nobody understands. You can adjust offensively in the playoffs, but it's almost impossible to adjust defensively. Defensively is a five-man game where everyone has to work together, right. and it takes 82 games of practice to get to that level where you have a continuity amongst yourself. And when you try to change that in the playoffs, inevitably one person will make a mistake. That's what Utah did to Oklahoma City in the playoffs is Oklahoma City tried to change their defense, and inevitably one guy was always out of position. Houston was able to give Golden State trouble because they were playing the exact same defense that they played all season long. Cleveland looked like a fool trying it in the finals. I think some teams are more well equipped though for this and when you're just talking about
2: five players that can switch. That's the one adjustment that I think is at least a little bit easier and teams work on it in small doses throughout the regular season and then can employ it much more in in the playoffs. So, I get what you're saying. I don't think a team that never switches one through five can can just go to that or can make massive changes like that. But teams that have one lineup that they do that on occasion throughout the you know, throughout the regular season, but then they it becomes sort of their core lineup in the playoffs. To me, that It's easier to go that way than go the other way. It's easier to tell a team that that either hedges or shows or drops or whatever to, you know what, we're just going to switch, than it is to do the other, um, but it just takes the right personnel to be able to do that, and only a handful of teams have that personnel.
0: Yeah, I think it's a personnel issue more than anything else, and... Having that defensive center is awesome, not only because it allow it, i think in many ways the most important part of it is that it allows you to have a great defense without that kind of personnel and so if you right. have it then then it makes makes it work but if you have Rudy gobert if you have or or Portland system or something like that, you can make it work and actually that 's one other point I wanted to bring up we 've been talking about big man defense and all the kind of stuff. This is maybe, to me, the most striking stat of the regular season in 2018-19. Or, sorry, 17-18. I I can't predict the future. Only David Locke can do that. (laughs) But, so, last season... 29 teams in the NBA allowed a shooting percentage at the rim between 60%, 59-7 technically, and 67. It's really more within a narrow band, narrower band than that, but you had a few teams like Dallas at the outskirts because they had no rim protection at all. So you had all those teams. Toronto was number two, second best, 59.7. Portland was 55.4. So they're 4% percentage points clear of the entire NBA and yeah, and and they gave up a fair portion of shots at the rim you know they were on the higher end of that and so I'm sitting there going you know I I think a lot of the fundamentals of their defense like I, I what Locke is saying about them not giving up threes that is totally true that is a part of it but I'm just sitting there going when there is that big of an outlier and sure Nurk is better than people give him credit for sometimes but my thought is, like, I'm going to be watching that number the entire season because that's such a weird outlier. And even just knocking that to 60% like everybody else was at, that's a couple of points every few games that could end up mattering for the Blazers.
1: You guys are smarter numbers-wise than I am. Is that a big enough sample size to have something weird like that? I don't know. I'm with Danny in that.
2: Hearing that, I never would have guessed it. So hearing it now, I'm like, hmm, that's – that's an... for me, my first thought is that's an area of regression. But it could be something, as you mentioned with stats. I think a lot of times when you take away the the, the general rhythm of basketball, you force guys into just a little bit more uncomfortable shots even if they're shots at the rim it's a driving it's usually a drive and kick against every other team but now it's a drive and i have to put up this shot i mean so I, i'm curious but i would get my my hunches there's an uh, there's some regression coming well so
0: what, i looked, I looked, I, I, looked wait, it
1: wait, up i, I, I want to go back to that i think that's a fascinating point adam just made because mm-hmm. the number one thing the analytics community will always talk about is that three point shots regress to the mean and if you the celtics you know everyone shot Above the break threes against the Celtics were unusually low. There was a period of time where Utah had that. And the analytics community, and I'm talking to you, Kevin Pelton, will always say, well, that'll just regress to the mean. But I'm a little bit more with Adam that at some point, some defenses are making you take shots regularly out of rhythm and uncomfortably in a spot in the offense where you don't usually get them. And I think that leads to a lower shooting percentage. So I want to give Adam credit for bringing that up. Little did he know he just got himself in a fight with Kevin Pelton that I have nothing to do.
0: (laughs) And interestingly enough, the numbers actually kind of bear that out. So when you look at it, last so this past year yeah 55.4 is is a crazy that's like that's a real outlier number they've been below 60% opponent shooting at the rim for each of the last 5 seasons and last year, fifty the year before last, fifty six seven, fifty six nine. So those were number one and three respectively before the number one last year. So maybe there is a little bit to this that they by having a guy there more often and forcing off these threes that they that they are they are defying gravity by making structurally different shots than a lot of these other teams. Are you cleaning the glass right there? Yeah,
1: <laughs> I need a tutorial on that site on how to use it correctly. I love that site. Um, I Denver
2: tried this by the way last year with with mid range shots and it did not work. They tried to force teams basically just suckering them into taking pretty wide open mid range shots and team shot lights out because it was such an obvious and easy uh, red carpet to to that. So there is, I, I think some some of this is is executed better than others, but I do think the best defenses are the ones that you know you you run the same actions throughout the year and. And you have like three or four reads. And when that fifth read comes up, even if it's a wide open seven footer, you know, there's that little calculation in your brain that thinks, man, usually I either get to the rim or I, I kick out. And right now I'm wide open for the seven footer. I almost don't know what to do. And, and maybe that's just part of what's happening in Portland. I, I really don't know. Again, that, that number makes me think there's at least some regression coming, but but there's probably something to them being very good at it.
0: Plenty more to talk about on the Northwest division, but a quick message from our friends at Online. It is a very exciting time in the gambling betting world, and it is a pleasure to announce that BetOnline is the exclusive partner with Podcast One Sportsnet. Real Gym Radio is a part of Podcast One Sportsnet. They are our go-to guys who we trust for all things betting. That could be lines, odds, wagers, inside information, you name it. So how you check it out is you go to betonline.ag. And a lot of different things that you can check out right now football season is, is the big thing that's coming up. You can go to betonline.ag and take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. And on top of that, you can use the promo code podcast one, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T and the number one to get a 50% sign-up bonus today. And also, it's a great place to get in on the action when it comes to Major League Baseball. Again, Podcast podcast One is the promo code. BetOnline.ag is the website. And it's the same 50% bonus. So you can check it out. Lots of stuff going up every day. The fun thing about baseball is that there's just so much action going on. So if you think you have an advantage, you can definitely check it out. So that again, that's BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts, and the podcast one promo code with the number one podcast number one for a 50% sign up bonus. This is not, you know, it can be whatever type of thing, but a move that could be a draft pick, a trading or a signing from these five teams that stood out to you for whatever reason.
1: Well, we've kind of touched on how little stuff went. I mean, I think the biggest move in the conference is Oklahoma City getting rid of Carmelo Anthony, who I do think was an absolute you know, weight upon them. I actually think his leadership was really, really good, and I think he actually showed more le- things that he wasn't credited for. But as a basketball player, I, I just think he hurt them. So Oklahoma City is better because Carmelo moved on. Um, that's the move that I think probably improves anyone the most, and that seems to be implying. I think the loss of Ed Davis, Shabazz, Napier, and Pat Connaughton, On the Blazers is the only collective move that I think has anyone wondering if their team might not be as good as they were a year ago.
2: I'm just going to be up front, guys. Most of my answers are Nuggets-related, and it's just, quite frankly, so many of the teams I think just stayed pat and don't have that many interesting moves. But David alluded to this just a moment ago, and it's the Nuggets getting rid of of Wilson Chandler and, and replacing him with Will Barton to me it's so interesting to me, I'm very high on that move, but it's Denver going all in on what they have been best at for the last two years, which is offense. And which is running teams and and just this pass happy high volume offense. And Wilson Chandler is he's a six eight super athlete who can defend multiple positions and knock down the three. So he's everything we always clamor you know we talk about. But he's just not quite as good at any of those things as, as you would think. Uh you know defense multiple uh, being a multi positional defender knocking down the three one on one scoring. He's not as good at that stuff as as people think. So for me Denver kind of going all in on offense and and they were already bad on defense and just saying you know what. But we're going to try to outgun teams. You know that—that's that, sort of the biggest thing that changes a team for the better in, in the division. So I guess you would say the Wilson Chandler move for
1: me. Can I ask you a Denver question that is just holding me back from totally buying in? Of course. Who off the And, bench? I, and I don't
2: think. First of all, I don't think you should be buying on the Denver Nuggets. They—they are a very high variance team. I think this year. Who off that bench is good? Yeah. Well, I think Mason Plumlee is good. I think he's.
1: A top yeah. Yeah. Actually, I totally agree. I totally a, <laughs> agree. I totally agree. I think he's fabulous.
2: Yeah. Outside of that, I mean, we're banking on Isaiah Thomas to carry to to carry a lot of just the orchestrating of that offense. So, but but you're absolutely right about that. They're going to be relying on Tory Craig, Juancho Gomez, who we don't know anything about, and Trey Lyles, who Trey, Trey Lyles had a fantastic like December January stretch, and then was exactly the player he was the other months. So I, you're, you're right that the bench is a big question mark, and injuries concerns will be a big question mark. But last year their point guard was Emmanuel Mudiay. I mean, the, my biggest takeaway is. Moutier has been a a huge part of the Nuggets lineup for the last two and a half seasons, and he's not there anymore, and he's replaced by a guy who at least has the upside to carry the scoring load on offense. So I just don't think the bench can get worse.
1: It's pretty fascinating if you go back to February 1 of last year, how many teams in this division got rid of players that statistically really were holding them back. And plus minus is classified as such a limited number and you know real plus minus has become the more in thing but just not the simplest kind of thing that any fan can look at and basically understand which is plus minus losing Emmanuel Mudiay makes Denver better losing Joe Johnson makes Utah better losing Rodney Hood makes Utah better losing Carmelo makes actually not a great deal in plus minus frankly getting Andre Robertson back makes Oklahoma City better it's it's an intri- it's it's got some flaws it's not the best number in the world i don't think you could ever hold your job as a GM making all your decisions on it but every now and then when you have a really good team and you have a player on your team that every time he plays you're negative that's pretty telling and it's interesting that they're all gone
2: Moody, I think the biggest anchor of all I mean I mean statistically it, there was just no combination you could put him out there with that that did not hemorrhage points in fact one of the interesting things about Denver last year is they were a pretty net neutral team overall and they were such an enormous negative with Moody on the court that even Jokic couldn't save him. Jokic, every single player in a two-man combo last year was a pretty massive positive, and Moody somehow still managed to be in the negative. It, 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 it was I don't I don't think you can overstate how how much of an anchor he had been to that team. That's why when people ask me about Isaiah Thomas, I, the bar is so low for him. He just has to not turn the ball over and miss shots at the rim at, at an incredible rate.
1: Don't I mean, underestimate Joe Johnson last year.
0: Yeah, I mean, Monty <laughs> Morris will, probably will end up being a substantially better player than Emmanuel Mudiay was last year, partially just because he's not Emmanuel Mudiay. You know, like, I'm not yeah. a huge believer in Monty Morris at this point. Though I like some of what we saw with, from him in Summer League and a little bit last year. But, yeah, I mean, Mudiay, and, and also there's this challenge— with players, and I, I've classified this at other moments as the Alfred Payton problem more as a general manager thing than the coaching thing, though they're related issues, of when you have a guy that has the kind of the commitment because they drafted him high and everything like that. It makes it harder to move off them if it's not working, and so that's the other weight that Moody had. Was they're like, "Well, crap, we have to play this guy. We have to figure out what we have." And so, if maybe Monty Morris doesn't work, well, then you can try somebody else. If you know, depending on how long it takes for Isaiah to get better, the moves that I wanted to talk about in this division. Well, there are two, but I want to start with the re-signings. I think this is the most interesting division in the league in terms of re-signings. Start at the top with Paul George, not only coming back to the Thunder without taking a meeting with the Lakers, but coming back on a three plus one. That's a longer deal than I expected. That is huge for this division. It's huge for the Oklahoma City Thunder, wonderful for them. But then also Derek Favors, one year with a non-guaranteed second year it's a lot of money this year, so good for him in that context, but Utah gets a, maintains a lot of flexibility. Will Barton signed a four year contract, I think around 52. You, I'm sure Adam has 50, the num-
2: 54.
0: 54. And and so you have that's the other kind of dynamic. We talked about how there wasn't a lot of turnover, and you could add Jokic here, but it, that that move was just exactly what we expected. So there wasn't really much real gravity there. And so right. I think that's what. And and you could th- even throw in Exum. I mean, Exum got paid got paid three three guaranteed seasons, and so. I think that's the story of the offseason of this division was the different structures of these contracts and teams largely holding it together. And I, I think the teams are hap- are really happy with those contracts and all those circumstances maybe all but one.
1: Well, I can touch on the favors in Exum because I know him well. Um, and I think the Paul George is probably the biggest story, so I don't want to bury the lead. Paul George, I mean, Oklahoma City saved their franchise, right? I mean, to some extent. Like if Paul George leaves and Carmelo's gone and now you've got Russ on this Mammoth contract there has to be a legitimate question of whether you're trying to move Russ so uh, I think there's you know Oklahoma City save their franchise now we've all just decided that they're really really good because Paul George returned and I'm not and they weren't that great last year so it's an interesting question of whether we're right on this or whether we're just kind of wowed by the fact he returned and everything's so positive. I, I think they are good, um, but I don't actually have a lot of track record to prove that to myself other than they're, they're starting five with Andre Robertson on the floor, I guess would be it. From the favors standpoint, it's interesting. Um, he got paid a lot, but you had, you're had you asking Derek favors to come back to a team where he might not finish games. Yeah. Um, and, and so you're going to have to ask if he, if he's willing to sacrifice like that, you're going to have to pay him more. And I think also there was a level where the Jazz had lined up what they were going to do. And so paying him more, there wasn't anything else you were going to do with that money. So you might as well keep him in a happy state and thank him for his sacrifice because he's He's really sacrificed quite a bit as a player to do what's happening with the Utah Jazz, and so you thank him. The other one is I do think it was very important for the Jazz to send the message to the league that players improve while they're in Utah and then get paid by the Jazz, not necessarily by somebody else. And I think that was, I think that was a, a somewhat important message. Uh, for them to be sending as well. In the case of Dante, it's an interesting three-year, I think, what was it, 11 per? Is that right? I think what you're deciding there is the first decision you're making is, do I believe in Dante Exum, still the fifth pick of the draft with the defensive ability, the fast speed. And the minute you say yes to that, then what you would like to do is sign him for a multi-year deal. Because if you still believe in him, you're not doubting it, You I, we believe in him, then you don't want him for one year or two years. You want him for three because you believe maybe I'm overpaying in the first, but by the third – I'm going to win this battle.
2: It's interesting what you said about favors and this idea of them trying to send the message to the league because I think that's been Denver's M.O. for the last two or three years. It's why they overpaid Mason Plumlee last season. Or it's largely why. And I think it's largely why they overpaid Will Barton this year, although I think much more marginally. So I think he's that, that contract will be market value for most of its life, in my opinion. But Denver and Utah as well has to send those messages. And I don't know if these are going to pay off, by the way. Denver seems to really think – they're building a lot of goodwill around the league to show that they take care of their guys and they reward their guys, signing their two-way contract guys when they don't have to and stuff like that. But I don't know if it makes a difference. Will Barton has done everything Denver has asked of him, so they wanted to reward him early in free agency and did. Derek Favors, you know, his contract, I think, is it's a lot smarter to do that for one guaranteed year than it is for three like Denver did. Uh, but I always question these, these moves. I just don't know that they actually make a, a huge difference to free agents around the league like that. enough to get them to consider a, a, a city like Salt Lake City or Denver.
0: My frequent podcast partner, Nate Duncan, ta- uses the phrase winning the press conference. And I think overall, like, I, there's an organizational benefit like for the guys that are still in your locker room to say, hey, if you if you earn it, you can do it. And I think that's the bigger benefit rather than getting guys or agents from other places to say, hey, we should consider bringing our guys there because the primary way that Denver and Utah add players to their team is through the draft. And so I guess if you can get make sure that guys work out for you, something like that, that there's a benefit there. But it is good for... For the players that are there to say, hey, you know, if, if if I work hard, if I do well, like Will Barton, you know, primarily dealing with coming off the bench, even though the Nuggets were better when they're playing with him rather than Wilson Chandler, despite Wilson Chandler being a more intuitive fit from a basketball theory standpoint. So I think right. there there is an argument there. But I, I agree with Adam just in the general premise that if we're thinking about this from kind of a utilitarian standpoint, that there is a, a limited value there. And I want to transition this into the other move, the move that was not a retention that I think is the most interesting in this division. And it's a combination thing. So Oklahoma City made the decision, which I believe is correct, that once Paul George resigned that they couldn't keep Carmelo Anthony. Maybe they would have dumped him either way. I think they probably would have just because he makes so much money, didn't make much sense with the team. That's a question that we don't need to answer. But what they did on top of that was really interesting because they made a definitive choice to add Dennis Schroeder. And the idea here is paralleling Reggie Jackson a few years ago, getting another guy who can handle the ball, who can run a little bit of the offense, who can also play with Russell Westbrook. And what's so bizarre about this to me is I get the theory of wanting somebody who can play with and back up Russell Westbrook. I do not understand why they went, okay, we need that guy and it's Dennis Schroeder.
2: I always assume this move was more of a financial decision, and and it made it just lined up to make that that financial sw- swap to him. I don't, I, I can't imagine anybody thinking that's an ideal fit. Now, again, just like it was with Moutier, it just has to be a better fit than Carmelo Anthony was, which I think it will, it, it should be that. The biggest questions I have for for him going there is just the personality fit because their best lineups will not include him, in my opinion. So how long will he be content with that?
1: I have an offensive metric I use to evaluate a player's impact on a game. It's called PAC. The idea is that you let an average player have the same amount of possessions as the player we're discussing and whether he would score above or average. Same points more or less, right? So S- Steph Curry is the best in the league, right? You give him... 26 possessions, he scores four points more than anyone else. The worst offensive players in the league last year, the most (laughs) negatively impactful players last year, were Dennis Smith, Lonzo Ball, Josh Jackson, De'Aaron Fox. Okay, all rookies. Chris Dunn. Andrew Wiggins, Avery Bradley, Carmelo Anthony, so huge plus to get rid of him, Marcus Smart, Frank Nilakina, Russell Westbrook, and Dennis Schroeder. So big plus to get rid of Carmelo (laughs) unless those possessions go to Dennis Schroeder, and then I don't have a plus mathematically.
0: And Schroeder also, somebody who, like, based on his physical profile, you go, oh, he could be good defensively, but he's never really translated. Maybe being in Oklahoma City with more accountability since this team is actually playing for something. But he was playing for something in Atlanta before last year. Like, this is not a circumstance where he's been on, a moribund franchise for half a decade or anything like that. The Hawks were great. You know, they were really competitive when he was a rookie, and I've never really, even more than when he was a rookie, and I never really saw that from him. He's one of those guys who looks like a better defender than he is, and offensively, yeah, he's been rough.
2: I'm kind of high on this Oklahoma City team. I think maybe I don't want to get the cart before the horse here if we're, we're going to go do this later. But it has nothing to do with Dennis Schroeder. I think the only question I have for them. I think they have a, a five-man sort of. I don't want to call it a death lineup, but I think they have a five-man lineup that's going to compete with just about everybody. And that, that as we saw in the playoffs, is really, really important. My biggest caveat with them is Andre Robertson's injury was was pretty bad, and. I, a guy that is a zero on offense and a, and a a perfect 10, maybe the best perimeter defender on defense, even if he just becomes one of the 10 best perimeter defenders on defense, maybe that's enough to kind of sink them just a little bit down. But to me, the the, the Dennis Schroeder thing to me was a financial thing. He's going, he's going to be a bit of an anchor for them, but I don't think he overall affects what makes their ceiling so high for me.
0: We'll get into it a little bit later, but your idea about them having a five-man thing, I think they have four. And I don't know who the heck the fifth guy is, and so maybe they have it on roster. Maybe you're more confident in one of those guys than I am. But I mean, they have a lot of good pieces. I, I think we should probably save that a little bit. I know that we we talked about the Schroeder move plenty, so I guess we can move on. The next question, which is different in this division than almost any other one, is who is the best newcomer to his team? Yeah.
2: Yeah. So for me, again, I told you this is going to be very Denver heavy, and I'm not trying to be a homer. I just think they have they fit all the categories of the questions. And for me, Isaiah Thomas is the most in interesting. interesting and here's why not just because denver's starting unit was so good last year and their bench was so bad that i just don't see as we talked about i don't see it getting worse but more as important Nikola Jokic has played with only a handful of point guards in his career jamal murray who's not really a point guard but he's a i think he's a good player just not a point guard dj augustine Jameer Nelson, Randy Foy and so now you're throwing in Isaiah Thomas who again not a true point guard but but the point I'm getting to here is Jokic shot 60% from the floor with only like 10 dunks two seasons ago that when Jameer Nelson was the point guard because Jameer Nelson was the one guy on the team that could run the pick and roll, pull up from the free throw line if they left him open and if they tried to trap or double he could just throw the ball to the short roll to Jokic and Jokic was so good at that. Last year he did not have that. His shots in the paint and at the rim went down so much in large part because Emmanuel Moody and Jamal Murray just weren't very good at running pick and roll with them. If Isaiah Thomas can do that, carry some bench units with some scoring and just be not as bad as Emmanuel Moody on this with the second unit and then mix in 10 minutes a game running pick and roll with Nikola Jokic, who I think is one of the best short roll Playmakers and scores in the NBA. Then to me, that's a huge boost for this Nuggets team, who was such a hot and cold team. When Jokic was on the floor, hot. When he was off, cold. Uh, so to me, he's the, he, there's a chance that he's a complete negative, and he's not any good, and he's hurt, and all of these things. That of course, that's the risk with him. But I think if he plays just more or less what's been in line with the last five years, not just his year in, in, in Boston, but more or less. What he's been for the last several years, then I think it's a big positive for Denver, and and at least makes them one spot better in the uh, Western Conference standings.
1: I think, hey, if Isaiah Thomas is who he was two years ago, he's Allen Iverson. He was incredible. Right. I think we've forgotten how great he was. So if you get anything of that, Denver, that's a enormous win for Denver to be able to have that as a potent player off the bench on a bench we just talked about that might be lacking. Even moreover, Adams talked about how they've just gone all in offensively, which I'm not sure I kind of buy into, but. You know, if if, if if Isaiah Thomas was like the second or third best offensive player in the NBA two years ago, so if he's anywhere near that again, it's an incredible, incredible get. Chemistry-wise, I think it'll be interesting with Isaiah Thomas just because he's got so much to prove. Right he, I just don't know that Isaiah Thomas who's going to show his value by being a scorer again is going to be willing to have seven shot nights and there are a lot of shots on that roster that guys you know and so Trey Lyles is still trying to prove his identity he wants his looks and not to mention the starting five are all guys that regularly get looks so I think there's that's the one concern I have there there really is nobody else in this unless you believe <laughs> are Nerlens Noel believer in right. this division who you suddenly think or if you're a Seth Curry believer so well, how did you phrase it? Danny, I want to see if I can wedge this
0: in somehow. I said best newcomer to his team. Okay,
1: then I'm going to go to Dante Exum. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, A technicality, but
1: sure. Right. I'm really cheating, but... You have to because there's nobody else. But So Dante Exum, I don't actually have any idea still. I joked all summer long that if I was in the Jazz front office every time it's... Name came up, I would suddenly have gastric distress and walk out of the room, so I wouldn't. But the guy played 82 games as a rookie, and he didn't really – he just was not Trey Burke, and that's all they needed him to be. And he hadn't played hardly. Then he got the ACL, missed an entire year. Come back in the ACL, you're missing like an entire – you basically aren't right until post-All-Star break. He was pretty good post-All-Star break. And then he separates the shoulder and plays 14 games all year. Like he's a newcomer. He's twenty-three years old. We twenty-two years old. Turns twenty-three. Yeah, turns twenty. He's twenty-three years old now. I have no idea who he is still to this day. But I do know this: he's incredibly fast. He's six-six with incredible length, and he's an amazing defensive player, as we saw against James Harden. So he will have a larger impact on this division than probably any other newcomer. Will and with the amount of time he may play this year, just generally in the sense that he only played 235 minutes all of last year.
2: I like that one a lot. To be honest, I have Exum later on as a guy with potential breakout potential. But I, I was racking my brain for guys to not pick Isaiah Thomas on this one, and there just wasn't anybody that that beat him out. Ex- well, Exum, I think, is interesting.
0: Exum is interesting. I wonder I, the, the fit for him with Donovan Mitchell is going to be fascinating. Just to see how those two guys mesh. I, I'm trying. to piece together a lot of it's going to depend on whether dante can hit catch and shoot opportunities if he can take those and make those another guy i want to mention wait wait wait.
1: i gotta jump in here i gotta jump in here okay this is my you know i'm I'm on my island. Why, when we talk fit, do we always talk offense?
0: Oh no, I, I, because I don't think there's questions in terms of the fit defensively. I think like isn't work. the defensive fit perfect? I wish Exum was a little bit, and maybe he's gotten this over the summer, but I wish he was a little bit physically stronger so he could be a little bit more versatile. But with Denver, or sorry, with Utah's defense, I think that can make that work. But yeah, it, it could absolutely, yeah. I mean, him and right, I mean, he
1: can guard one through three defensively. So if Donovan Mitchell, if you're trying to give Donovan Mitchell a break, he can guard anybody and let Donovan move over, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of the idea of Clay Thompson and Steph Curry in that way. Where it's not necessarily that you that Steph you need to hide him all the time. It's just that sometimes you're making a guy work hard enough offensively that you don't need to make him work defensively. That's the idea. And Donovan Mitchell is a whole hell of a lot better physically in terms of physical capability defensively than Steph. So, yeah, I I totally see that logic. The one other guy I want to mention, though, is I think there's a meaningful chance that Anthony Tolliver, especially for not counting Exum, because he's not a newcomer, but but I understand with the theory of the question, I'm totally fine with it, that Tolliver provides the most value just because... He fits in well with what Minnesota needs. Just a guy who brings consistent effort is a relatively low usage guy, but is efficient when he's out there. Like, you you talked about the Denver second unit having a lot of, you know, there are a lot of shots or, or you could make similar arguments with a, with a number of other second units or other teams. Well, that's basically Minnesota's entire squad. You know, Towns and Butler are both very talented offensively. They're both very effective offensively. Wiggins is neither of those, but still shoots almost as much as those guys. And then Jeff Teague, you know, he's, I think of him, you know, I don't think he creates as much as he should, but you get into that. And so just having players, and I mean, you could make the argument too with a Koji to a point, depending, I don't know if he's going to play for them, but just having guys who aren't trying to get shots will actually help Minnesota just because then it opens things up a little bit.
1: Well, last year on the show, I talked about the fact that everyone was worrying about the looks on Oklahoma City, and I thought Minnesota had a much larger problem. Minnesota, if you, going into last season, and I don't think they ever solved this, if you took their, going into last season, if you took their average possessions used per game the prior year they had by and put all their players together... They were at like 145. Well, you only get 100 a game and you turn a bunch of those over. So you only get about 82. And so they, I mean, they, every single player on their team had to take a 15% reduction of how many possessions they used to be able to gel together. And I'm not sure that they ever figured that out. So I think there's a real value to what you're saying. And then frankly, if Anthony Tolliver can go hit 42% of his threes like he has since he left Detroit, then that's really pretty awesome
0: and it's worth noting that I agree with you that Minnesota never really solved that problem. They still had the number 4 offense in the league last year and that says something about how crazy their talent is on that end of the floor that they can that they cannot have figured everything out. And certainly some of that was exposed in the playoffs as well. And it's so weird that their defense was as bad as it was for the kind of similar reasons. But offensively, they were it's so weird they're the kind of the ultimate results over process team for me where I kept on getting pissed off watching the Timberwolves, and then you'd see them, you know, have these big scoring nights, and you're going, am I worrying over nothing? And then when they, you know, got, they were always going to get beat by the Rockets, but the way they got beat by the Rockets to me was like, okay, well, maybe this will be relevant eventually. So I I haven't been able to reconcile it with them, but I I openly admit that that might just be me.
1: Will they be better than 22nd defensively next year, Adam? Minnesota? Yeah.
2: Yes, I think they will be. Not by much, but I think they will be. Weren't they better in the back half I would have to look at this but weren't they better in the back half of the season defensively?
1: I don't think so. I think we keep trying to talk ourselves into that the last two years. <laughs> it was on this show on this show last year we talked about how they improved all year and then I pulled up the numbers and it wasn't true at all. I okay. actually think I might have argued with myself on that one all by myself. But so I don't recall that to be true. I'm going to double I'm looking at
2: it right now but I'm going to double down on um, Oh,
0: actually this does not necessarily help you. So I I picked just randomly January 15th on cleaning the glass. They were so that was 37 games. They were 26th in defense from that point on. See, that's incredible.
2: Yeah, that is incredible.
0: They were third in offense, so they still put up a positive net rating despite being 26th in defense, but they were 26th in defense.
2: I mean, but that's really all right. So, that's really important. It is important that I have some takes with Towns because I think he is uh, as great as he has been. I think he's a lot better than than we than we even realize or, or that he's shown so far. Because as you mentioned, him and Jimmy Butler carried that offense off of really tough shots and really obvious, deliberate offense where you throw the ball to one of those guys and they make something happen. And the moment it's not going to happen this year, but the moment they their offense gets a little bit more life into it, they play I think a little bit more 2018. It's incredible that he's been able to do this with a dribble down, throw the ball into the post, and watch him post up offense.
0: To me, the most incredible part about Minnesota's offense—I mean, you brought up the Towns and Butler thing. I think that's totally true—was also the fact that they were this incredibly effective offense despite not running. I mean, so last year, they were taking— more than four-fifths of their shots, 81, or actually it was close to 82% at 81%. In half-court circumstances, teams are just about always way more efficient in transition than in half-court. Minnesota was the only team that had that high a proportion that was really effective in half-court offense, They nine, a nine, and that's a 96-6 offensive rating. But so you're sitting there and you're going, okay, you know, like transition frequency last year, 27th in the league, they were effective when they ran which is actually a warning sign because sometimes that will wear off you know a little bit but they do have good transition players so you're sitting there with Minnesota going how are they this good on offense when there's still so much untapped potential and it's sort of a different story on defense where i think they could be a whole lot better than they are but maybe they're just there is a ceiling there but so i i i can't figure out their offense it's so crazy to me
2: to me it's just a very oh, i mean they have Andrew Wiggins could be a very good cutter off of Towns at the elbows and at the top of the key, and they just never do it. And some of this, you never know When I've learned from covering the league. You never know, is this because they're trying to do something else and the coaching staff has deliberately put principles in place to avoid that? I think there's certainly a lot of truth to that just because Tibbs' teams have always kind of had a a deliberateness to their offense. But you never know also if it's just what players are doing. And with Wiggins in particular, the give and go between him and Towns could just be so deadly and it's not even a part of their offense. You almost never see that combination between them but imagine trying to guard those two in those type of actions the Gary Harris Nikola Jokic type actions it'd be so deadly so the fact that they are so good in the half court it's actually kind of mind-boggling and just speaks to how good Towns is as a one-on-one scorer and Jimmy Butler
0: yeah it's it's absolutely crazy that they can that they can pull this off. And, I, you know, I hope that we see this team stay together just because I'm interested in what happens. But, I mean, it feels like it might be a house of cards of sorts if Jimmy Butler decides to take his talents elsewhere in 2019, which is just want to do. I mean, he's, he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. He can do whatever he wants. But I want, I, I, I'm just, this team is so hard for me to figure out. Like, the, you know, a lot of times you spend the first couple weeks in the season and it becomes like, oh, if they're healthy, this is kind of what they are. With Minnesota, I don't know, it kind of always feels like a work in progress for me, and it always feels like I'm wrong, which is okay. I mean, that that happens, and I'm happy I'm happy that that occurs with, with some teams just because it keeps you on your toes, and you're just like, and that, that's why I watched a lot of the Timberwolves last year because I was just kind of fascinated with them. But, yeah, I mean, there are these these big questions, and you think about, like, holy crap, how good could this offense be if they actually ran as much as, you know, basically anybody else in the league?
2: It's hard to run, though, when you're playing 40 minutes a night, though. That's oh. all I
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually we yeah, no. I'll save that for later. I have a stat with their starting five that I think is pretty amazing. Um, but I'll I'll save that for for a little bit later on. Wait, when, let me
1: go full. Let me go full circle there. Okay, sure. Is that why they ranked what they did defensively in the second half of the season?
2: Oh, that's a good question.
0: It very well could be.
1: I think Jimmy
2: Butler missing also had oh, a lot yeah. to do. <laughs> I think that was probably the biggest piece. Because I think the the 20 games he missed or 21 or whatever, I, they might have been dead light. It was a really, really, really bad stretch that I'm sure weighed down a lot of their numbers.
1: Well, they were 22 for the year, so you couldn't weigh them down too far.
2: I think it did, though. I, I, I mean, we could probably pull this up. I don't remember the exact date he got hurt, but it, it was I, I believe it was pretty substantial.
0: I have the number that I wanted. I just looked it up. When Carl Anthony Towns shared the floor with Jimmy Butler, the Minnesota Timberwolves had a 104.7 defensive rating. When Carl Anthony Towns was on the floor without Jimmy Butler, the Minnesota Timberwolves had a 112.7 defensive rating. So that's a jump of eight points per hundred possessions.
1: Is that a statement of Jimmy Butler? Is that a statement of Carl Anthony Towns or a statement of who they had playing instead of him?
0: Mostly, but I would say mostly Butler and Towns. I mean, that they didn't have anybody to replace Butler, but also that he was doing the lifting. I mean, Jimmy Butler is, he, I think he was doing a lot. And also, you know, I'm sure there's some selection bias there. Also, I'm sure some of the minutes without Butler were also without Tosh Gibson, who I thought did a nice job overall defensively for them last year. But yeah, I mean, Towns, I, I think one of the questions there, one of the things there is that at this point in his career, Towns can't carry a defense. Uh, a criticism that has been levied more in a different offensively ca- offensively gifted center in this division.
2: Of course, Jokic always gets the uh, the headlines in that department. But I think the, the thing that I really take away from that and that we saw uh, maybe the number one thing I learned last year about the game of basketball, about NBA basketball, was just how much of an impact one elite defender can have on an entire defensive scheme. And Millsap was that guy for Denver. Jimmy Butler clearly that guy for Minnesota. So often we talk about this guy's not a rim protector. This guy can't... close out or can't guard the pick and roll or whatever but having just one backline guy to kind of support you, I mean, look at the difference Dr- Draymond Green has on on the off on the defense for Golden State. So, I think I think that says more about Jimmy Butler than it does about Towns.
1: Andre Robertson in Oklahoma City and Adamas. Huge Adamas. I am on my island by myself. There's plenty of nice real estate. The defense is as important as offense. If you would <laughs> like, if you would, the the shut the I can get a ferry driver to bring you over. You are more than welcome to come live on the island with me. There, my speed sparse my
2: speedboat is going so fast in the other direction that I, I think it's too late for me. I'm I'll, I have a better chance of circling the globe and, and getting to the island.
0: Okay. It is so can I, can empty I, here. I have no good David, restaurants. There are no.
1: <laughs>
0: David, can I be with you on the island as long as I have a contract that I leave on April fifteenth? Because I think that <laughs> yeah. I, I think that you're right in the regular season, and I think in the playoffs it gets a lot more complicated. You know, like then it's the the, the, the defense is still insanely important. Obviously, I think that's a part of the reason why. Cleveland never really had a chance against the Warriors the last couple of years, but it's a, you know, it's a really challenging. And the guy that I'm using as the encapsulation, you just brought him up is Andre Robertson. Like Andre Robertson is a wonderful regular season player, but once you can game plan because his weaknesses are so severe. And that's true, I think, of weaknesses. There are guys who are great offensive players who are yeah. bad defensive players. That, that They go into that. So I think maybe maybe what I'm saying is like one-way defenders are more valuable in the regular season. But like an all-around guy who's good at defense, incredibly valuable. And th- those players.
2: And, and let me also – I want to say this though, David. I, I'm not that I think de- d- defense is unimportant. I think defense is just a lot more of a five-man thing. We always single it out as this guy's bad at defense. And sometimes it's it's obviously very true. But we just talked about Portland and how their defense is good, and we don't know why. I think def- I think the scheme and the cohesiveness and all of those things uh, on the defensive end are largely uncharted and untalked about territory, and that's why I think a lot of these conversations about Oh, you need this player to be able to do this and that. I think are largely nonsensical because it's really about how all five pieces fit together.
1: Here's my discussion on this topic that I think you know, I'm taking us off. Our, our division's boring, so we're having all these other conversations. <laughs>
2: um,
1: I'm going to use just two players. So Lou, let's take Lou Williams. Is the best offensive player off the bench in the NBA and maybe one of the worst defensive players. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. So Andre Robertson is really extreme. But let's take Royce O'Neal or Dante Exum, who are probably the best defensive players in the league off the bench and some of the least good offensive players, right, statistically? What I think is interesting about this league in this regard is that the worst offensive players have to be so good offensively to just get to the league, whereas the worst defensive players are awful, and it's something that I don't think gets talked about enough. Just to even get a look to play in the NBA, be on a summer league, you have to have offensive skills, and if you have good enough offensive skills, nobody cares that you can't play defense a lick. And the worst defensive players in this league are way worse than the worst offensive players in this league.
2: There's just too many counter examples though for me, and and I, I'm going to use another Denver one. The guy's gone now, but Kenneth Farid and Nikola Jokic have been an absolutely dominant front court pairing, and they are two of the worst defenders at their position. But it just didn't matter because offensively they. I, so to me, it's all about how do the pieces fit, and and again, we look at these things too much in a vacuum, especially. It's we know this for offense. You could have a great spot up shooter if nobody gets him the ball. Of court. we we all kind of understand that player becomes limited, but defensively, I think this is the exact same thing. A lot of these guys have some sort of defensive tool. It's how do they fit along the guys? Do you have guys that could cover for the things that they're most weak at? And and to me, it's just so largely ignored. So that's why I'm not on defense is, you know, less important island. I just think that it's it's much more complicated than, than you're making it out to seem the great offensive player has no defense versus this other guy. To me, they're both two different ingredients. It's what can you cook with both of them?
0: The idea of survivorship bias in this is for, that David brings up is really interesting. It's something I haven't thought about enough that you that there is a certain threshold. I think that the league is also becoming more open, especially now with the kind of three and D wings, where they're like, "Oh, we'll figure out the three part of it later." Like the, those guys are getting <laughs> NBA contracts earlier now. Like they're getting drafted high, all those sorts of things that that is changing the conversation a little bit. But it is a very interesting idea. And you could even bring up a guy like Tony Allen here. Like Tony Allen made it in the NBA because of he was a wonderful I mean he I mean he was good at both ends at Oklahoma State, but he was a wonderful offensive player and then he eventually became a more extreme defensive version of than I think any of us could have real realistically expected. So there is a part of that. But I also like something that Adam is is, is reaching for which I think is, is true is that I think you can scheme and cobble together a better defense with inferior personnel than the equivalent offensively. And I think you could go to a series of different examples that the Orlando magic are a good one there. And like, you can even look at the way that Rick Carlisle has done that with just put in second units, just putting a bunch of guards out there and just like, Oh, we'll figure it out. And, and he's right. I I think you can, you can make that work and that you need shock creation out there because if your offense flatlines, it really kills your whole team and that you can't, you, you can't, you can't make, fetch happen with inferior personnel offensively, but you can defensively to a point, and I think that where the rubber meets the road is in the playoffs, and I think these calculations completely change, and when you're talking about beating the Warriors, beating the Celtics, beating whoever else the best teams in the league are this upcoming season, the Rockets presumably, you know, like all that type of stuff, the conversation's different, but it is still a really interesting idea in terms of what gets what gets it. not only what gets a player who's in college found, but what gets a guy a major college scholarship offer is right, when you probably offered.
1: When, when Quinn Snyder puts out a lineup of Ricky Rubio, any two guard not named Donovan Mitchell, and any other group of players on the Jazz, isn't he doing the exact same thing? He's just getting by offensively. Give me players that can shoot that can dribble and pass and I'll be able to run enough offense to score and you won't be able to score against me. Well, I mean, talking, David, that's the, about, theory.
0: that's the theory of the Warriors' second unit, too, last year, where they, they stat Steph Curry and Kevin Durant at the same time. They basically couldn't score, but they put out these lineups defensively, and then they got enough and transitioned all these stuff to, to make it work.
2: Which, by the way, I think that's a great strategy for uh, for teams with their second unit. I always hate when second units try to run teams off of the floor when they're not good. I think Denver tried to do this for the last couple of years with Moutier, who was one of the fastest player on the Nuggets team from a pace perspective. If you have... A a weaker second unit, but they can defend, slow the game down. Buy, your, buy yourself some time, but keep those possessions limited so your starting, your best unit is playing the most possessions.
1: Jerry Sloan used to always do that with Stockton and Malone. When they went out of the game, he would just slow the g- game down to a halt. And his theory was, I'm going to try to get as few possessions as possible when both my guys are out of the game. I
2: think it's smart. I think it's a lot smarter than the opposite, which is, this unit's not very good, but they're fast. Let's try to really run. And then you end up giving up ten zero runs because that unit wasn't very good.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the general idea is that if you are a sup- if you have superior talent or you're a better team, we can define those as different things. The better team wants as many possessions as possible because that gives you the opportunity. And when they have fewer possessions, that increases the importance of variance. And so that's a it's a David strategy, you know, to to lower the number of possessions and it's it's definitely something that certain teams should do more often than they do and i also think there's a little bit of a line here which is trying to run but not just jacking up a shot because you feel like you have to like you can push and transition make the other team work but then still be judicious it's very hard to get young players in the right mind frame of like this is a good enough shot to take and this is not a good enough shot to take but that's kind of the idea of a kind of a uh a bifocal kind of offense where you push hard a little bit early and then you you pull back. But I understand, like, that's what I would try to do. But I'm not a coach, and there are many reasons why I'm not a coach. And I think part of it is because that theory is better than it in practice.
1: One note, I agree with all you guys on April 15th in the playoffs. I will also say, though, that if you look at seven of the eight teams that advanced to the second round of the playoffs, they were top five in the league at one or two, either offense or defense. The only team that was not was New Orleans, but they played a team that was not top five in anything, so it was guaranteed to happen. And then you get to the next tier of playoffs, and I find it very hard to
0: evaluate anything
1: when you're dealing with teams as great as the Warriors and as great as Houston's offense.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's the
2: theme of this podcast so far, by the way, that those last two rounds of the playoffs are just so different than everything else that – it's we almost have to talk about them separately.
0: Well, and I, I think that it's fair to not use those necessarily as a template, and it's the same I thing agree. from a team building perspective. Like, yeah, you know, if if you have an MVP caliber player, or even in certain cases, multiple MVP caliber players, you could do a lot more things. Like the the general rules of NBA team building and strategy and all that don't apply to you. I mean the Warriors with all their guys, the the Kyrie, LeBron, Cavs, and we'll see what team, and if you can get into that group, then the rules don't apply to you too, and that's what Houston did by getting Harden all those years ago and adding CP and all the other good players around him. The last question in the off-season review, I think this one will be faster, is the rookie you're most excited to see. This isn't who's going to be best. We shouldn't be thinking about that for rookies necessarily. But the one that you are most excited to see, and most rookies
2: are there in the whole division. There's none. This is the worst list, well, I think, if, in the whole if lot.
0: He, if he I plays,
1: mean, you got to be excited to watch Grayson Allen. He already got, <laughs> he already got into it with Trey Young and Wade Baldwin, right? He
0: gets into it with
1: everybody. Which, by the way... Good for him. Like, this league's about getting punked. Oh, man. No, 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 no. This is really serious. You talk to any player who ever played in this league, and they talk about getting – that they're trying to punk you until you prove you're not going to get punked. Every player. Like when Donovan Mitchell waited for Joel Embiid and knocked him to the ground after he taunted him, Ron Boone, who's been in the league since 1968, walked up to Donovan the next day and said, You bet your ass. Don't let anyone ever do that to you.
2: Donovan Mitchell was also a stud <laughs>
1: last year. Yeah, I mean, Jason Allen's <laughs> not going to be that good a player. I mean, but, you do that
2: kind of stuff when you're averaging one point every other game. It's just a little, to me, it's just a little bit. I see, I hear what you're saying. He's just in a different position.
1: Yeah, but I mean the two we're talking about, Summer League, Trey Young and yeah. Wade Baldwin, he, like he just stood up, for, like he just. He I, I'm not excited. Held
2: it. I'm not at all excited to see Grayson Allen this next well, season, I'm, and that, well, and that's kind of the bigger point. Is is the, the the question is which which guy are we more excited to see? And I have absolutely no no uh, no interest at well, all
1: in I Allen. Mean, I I mean, guess I mean, hey, if Michael Porter Jr. turns out to be healthy and good, that's a hell of a pickup.
0: Yeah. Michael Porter Jr. is the is the answer if he can actually play. We don't know if he can actually play. Uh, you know, I'd be shocked. I, I hope he can. But so so then the other kind of guys in this. I was a big Jared Vanderbilt guy at the Hoop Summit two years ago. I thought that he looked really capable. Like his defensive potential was intriguing. I don't know how much he's going to play. A Koji, we'll see how much he plays. Nobody's. The, you know, the Thunder drafted three guys, but none of those guys are going to play. And then Anthony Simon, Gary Trent
1: Jr. could be Alan Crab.
0: Yeah, Simons and Trent are the other guy. Basically, they're going to have an opportunity for one of those guys, maybe both, probably just one. And I like Simons better than Trent personally, but I could totally see, just because Trent is a more complete poly- – he played at Duke last year instead of playing at the IMG Academy. I could totally see Trent just being more stable and getting that opportunity and actually playing a part on that team.
1: I like Trent. I think Trent could be Alan crap. Is he
2: going to ha- – who's going to have the most minutes Total total minutes of all rookies. Oh, my gosh. In this division? Because we're really reaching here for all these guys because I don't think any of them are going to play. It might be Gary Trent. Yep, that's, a, that's who I would guess. I think and, Grace I don't, and I don't think he play. plays that
1: much. I think Grayson Allen's going to play.
0: Well, I mean it could be a Koji on the logic or Bates D. up on the logic that somebody's gonna get hurt on the Timberwolves and so somebody's gonna have to play those minutes. But I don't know well, if it's gonna be. Well wait,
1: does Thibodeau have to play five players?
0: He doesn't have to carry fifteen on the roster, but I think he does have to play five. But yeah, I mean that I mean you're right. If you look at any other roster in the world
1: you'd have to believe that with Minnesota's roster that a Koji or Bates, the app would get minutes. That that would only seem reasonable. Yeah. It 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 would. Let's I think Grace Allen's going to play 15 minutes a night.
2: I'm glad you brought up Jared Vanderbilt though, because I I don't think he'll play just because there's so many power forwards on the roster. But I I I'm really high on him. The the foot stuff, the injury stuff for him and Michael Porter Jr. Obviously, you know who knows what. It doesn't look good. But if he plays, to me, he's just such a great skill set for what Denver needs. Super rebounder, defender, multi-positional defender, and then he has all these other skills that he didn't show in college, but at the high school level, he was called Lamar Odom, you know, the new Lamar Odom. So, I, I'm actually really really high on him I just don't I, I'm high on him for two or three years from now not, not necessarily is, next
1: year. Can we just help out the rookie over here like who, who is Jared is? Vanderbilt? I don't, I don't know who he is.
2: is. So he played at Kentucky last year but he only played 13 games he had a foot injury in high school foot surgery then had another surgery in college so we're talking about a, a big guy with foot with foot issues but he, I mean he handles the ball incredibly well could play point guard at, played point guard in high school McDonald's All-American you know on, on all the circuit all the top tens you know coming into college it, really the biggest reason he fell was because he had two foot surgeries on, on one in high school and one in college but the guy had the highest rebound rate in college i think in ncaa history averaged something like nine boards a game in 15 minutes or something like that so calipari asked him to be dennis rodman and he went out and set a record for rebounding rate
0: yeah vanderbilt so i generally go to the hoop summit with very little knowledge unless i've heard about a guy like let's say rj barrett or some of these guys i usually walk in with very little specific knowledge about a player and his defense, in particular, you're sitting there going, "Oh my god!" Like he, like, I, I was wondering what his pedigree was, where he was going to go to school, all that kind of stuff, because he could defend. What I would say, like more like one through four than one through five, though I could yeah. certainly de- see it see it going that way, and physical capability, he was intriguing with the ball in his hand, somebody who who liked that a little bit too much. Like you know, like the NBA is full of guys who are the best player on their high school team. And so that's not necessarily a criticism. And so you just it's just adjustment. I mean, could go through like there are guys that never adjust. I think of OJ Mayo as an example there, but then there are a lot of guys who do. And Vanderbilt because he's so good at defense, he he fit in that and then went to Kentucky and Kentucky, that team was just a, a vortex for all of those players because their circumstance was was they had all these guys that couldn't shoot like it, it basically the, the the whole was less than the sum of their parts because of the way that that whole team worked and so I think a lot of their guys were hurt by that and you know it happens sometimes when you have like well, you know what, what kentucky's m o is you're getting a lot of these one-and-done guys. It depends on what the mix is, and they've been selecting for a lot of non-shooters over the last couple of years, and I think it has challenged a lot of that. I mean, you think about the difference between this team and the team that Jamal Murray played on, and so I think that can, you know a lot of these guys were kind of hurt by the, the mix that was created, and that's really nobody's fault in particular. Still have the whole season preview part of the podcast to do with... David and Adam. But I want to take a moment to tell you about Quip. Quip is fantastic. It comes out a lot of the problems that other electric toothbrushes have because they focus on better brushing. They are a fraction of the cost and a great size compared to other bulkier brushes while packing enough vibrations to help clean your teeth. I love the timer that it has because it goes the recommended amount of time, but it also pulses to let you know when to kind of change parts of your mouth, which I I really like. And then on top of that, going with the idea of, of function, they have a amazing subscription plan. And so what that is, is it gives you new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months. And those are just $5, including free worldwide shipping. It's awesome. I got one a little bit ago, changed it up and It was great. And you remember when you have a system like that, how often you should be changing your brush heads, which is great that Quip does it and does it at such a great price. And they have a suction mount if you're interested in that. It is a product that has been praised by a lot of different entities, including being on Oprah's O-List and one of Time's Best Inventions, because it is that good. I've been using it for more than a year. I absolutely love it. And... It's a great product, and it comes at an amazing price. Starts at just 25 bucks, and if you go to getquip.com slash realgm, just like the show, you get your first refill pack for free. And so you go to getquip.com slash realgm, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash realgm, tells them that you came from us, but also you get that free refill pack for free, and since they're Products just start at 25 bucks. It's an amazing service. So happy to use it and have it for the long term. Quip toothbrushes, get one today. Also have a message from our friends at TrueCar. These days, news travels lightning fast. That's great if you're a sports fan. Between status updates, breaking news notifications, and Twitter feeds, you can always be up to the minute on every team and every game. While this is great for sports, it is the opposite when it comes to buying a car. If you go online, you get bombarded with numbers, invoice, list price, dealer price. It's hard to know how to recognize a good price. Not anymore. Introducing True Price from True Car. It is the only price you need to know because it is exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories. How do you know if your True Price is a great price? Because True Car shows you what other people paid for that same car you want. So you know how to recognize a good price. Your certified dealers know this, so they set their true price competitively so they can win your business. So when you're ready to buy a new or a used car, Visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Okay, so let's move on to the season preview part. This is going to be very interesting for this division for the basic reason that I think all these teams are really, really close. And so how I've done this for a long time is ranking the teams one to five. You can do it in terms of regular season record. You can do it in terms of something else. Just say what your rationale is. And I'm very interested. I think we'll have a lot of conversations here.
1: I had the Thunder last year as the number two team in the West before they acquired Carmelo Anthony. Then when they acquired Carmelo Anthony, I dropped them. I haven't run all my numbers yet this year, but I think that they're going to be probably either the first, second, or third best defensive team in the NBA. And so then the question is whether or not they have a better offense than the Utah Jazz, because the Jazz will be probably the first or second best defensive team in the league. And I think they may be able to, though I'm not convinced because Dennis Schroeder is such an inefficient offensive player that he's actually going to help them uh, and Donovan will be more efficient than he was a year ago. But I, I'm going to take the Thunder at one, the Jazz at two very close. I'm going to take Minnesota at three and equally as close, but the t- defensive ranking just prohibits me from taking them much further than that. I do think that they are – you know, quite simply, this is probably exactly how I made my predictions last year, and they actually turned out to be right, so I'm going to hold to it. I believe that offensive rating and defensive rating have similar regular season value. And so when I look at Minnesota, who I think will probably be one of the four best offensive teams in the league, but probably 20th defensively, I think both the Jazz and the Thunder will be better than 22nd offensively. And so they they will be better I'll take Denver as next. They were sixth in the league offensively and 26 defensively, and they'll probably be awfully similar this year. And then I will take Portland as fifth. Just I think the little pieces they lost were winning pieces, and I thought they lost a lot of them over the last few years. So that would probably be my order, though I think they're all – you know, awfully good basketball teams and all have a very legitimate chance to make the playoffs.
2: I feel like you were doing the reverse Homer thing there and put OKC above Utah, even though I think you think Utah's better. And I I happen to have Utah as the best in the division. Adam,
1: Adam, just to jump, Oklahoma City was 10th in the league offensively with Carmelo pulling them down like an anchor, and so I just think they'll be, I think they'll be, without Carmelo, and I think with Andre Robertson healthy, I think they'll be top five defensive team and probably eighth offensively, and I think that wins the division.
2: I'm super high on Oklahoma City's upside. I'm just not as high on their regular season. I think they'll just fall below Utah. Utah's just so consistently good, and, and I think their floor is the highest of all of these teams. I think they're going to be a top five team in the west almost no matter what unless you unless you're talking about just horrible injury luck. So I have them as my number one. The, my question about OKC, I I brought it up earlier but we just kind of throw Robertson back into what he was before he got hurt and I'm just not so sure of that. It, his value is in that he is the absolute best defender in the league in the perimeter. Maybe Kawhi Leonard ahead of him, you know, hard to say after missing a year for him as well, but if he's just not that, I, I to me, there might be a little bit more bumps in the road, and they do have the question mark of Schroeder and depth and and, and some of those things. Power forward position, even a little bit. But so I go Utah, Oklahoma City. I have Denver ahead of Minnesota. I, I'm I'm very very high on Denver's regular season, and we can probably talk about that in a bit. But Minnesota, Denver, I think will be neck and neck in that kind of six to nine range, and then Portland. I have them. I just think Portland is not as as good as they have looked, so I'm 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 super low on Portland. I have them on the outside of the playoffs, looking in, and, and yeah. So I guess that would be my order.
1: What is it about Robertson's injury? The actual injury, or do you just think if he loses anything at all, it's a huge slip? A lot
2: of it has to do. Is I tore my quadriceps tendon a year ago, <laughs> it's just completely changed everything about. Now I I know you always get into trouble comparing yourself to professional athletes and and, and that rehab process, but just if he's 80%, to me, offensively, he is such an overwhelming negative that his value is in the fact that he shuts down the other team's best player almost every single night. And if he doesn't shut them down, if he holds Kevin Durant to 28 instead of 24, 23, I mean, it, to me, it just makes it just makes that big of a difference for what his value is.
1: By the way, and maybe, Danny, you'll answer this with your list here, Minnesota and Utah are bringing back virtually the same teams. Mm-hmm. Utah, the exact same. Training camp is considerably shorter, and the season starts earlier. Very few people have talked about what an impact it had last year, but it had a huge impact, particularly on veteran players who weren't used to that to start the year. The older veterans, Joe Johnson, David West, a bunch of guys like that had really terrible starts to the season. What do you think, if any, edge in such a tightly closed race does Minnesota and Utah have that they are not asking anyone to get to know anyone?
0: I think it's significant because you can get some of those wins early in the season. And it's not only about the continuity. It's also about knowing who to play because you don't have to go through that stretch of time where you're trying out lineups that end up being less effective than where you end up. And I, I think that could be a material advantage against teams that maybe close better, but just start out a little bit slowly because they're figuring all this stuff out. And it, it, it could be a material advantage. So I think if we were talking in the abstract about talent, I would have OKC1. But there's a reason that gives me pause. And that was, I was, you know, just talking with, with Kevin Pelton when we were doing our, uh, I think it was the off, we were talking about the offseason. And He just brought up, he's like, oh, yeah, and, you know, Jeremy Grant, the fifth starter for the Oklahoma City Thunder, and I was like, holy crap, you're right, and then I realized just how little their margin for error is here, because Grant, I like Jeremy Grant a lot, I think he's a good player, but, you know, he kind of compounds a lot of the stuff, great defensively, very intriguing there, was actually more of their backup center last year than anything else. And maybe if Patrick Patterson is healthy, if if what what ailed him last year was injuries, not just being older or anything else, maybe he can be a part of this. But that gets into what Adam was saying about Andre Robertson, because if Robertson isn't that guy, they don't really have anybody else to replace. They have all these kind of like fringy high, you know, maybe maybe they could end up being good guys like. Ferguson and Diallo and all the kind of stuff, but those guys are not ready for primetime yet. And so I think that if Oklahoma City, you know, if everything works out, I see them as the best team in this division, but I think it's more likely that Utah finishes with a better record, just because exactly. as you said, yeah, the high floor kind of an idea. I think OKC is a better team in terms of their, you know, personnel. I also think Utah's a better playoff team, which is an interesting question too. So it's like this weird thing with OKC where like the theory of their team is better, but I don't see them as being a better team. But they're one and two, I think just because because they have this capability of being a, you know, a, a great defense and being a, you know, above average offense. And so the, the possibility being top half in both and, you know, ideally being top five in one and top half in the other, like that's really valuable. After that, it gets tough. I mean, so Portland is this weird thing where it's like if, if we were talking about these teams at full strength, they would be lower, but like maybe they do have some health magic. Maybe they don't like maybe this is the year it doesn't work out. But I'm going to have Minnesota third, just because their offense, even without the low-hanging fruit, they're still really, really good. And defensively, they can't really be worse. So, so even if they're that that team, I think they're in the play in playoff contention, all that kind of stuff. There is some, I think, there's some underappreciated disaster potential with the Wolves this year, partially because you know it's the the, the frustrating part of it. Partially, you know, if Jimmy Butler starts to make murmurs like he's not coming back then maybe you do trade him. This is the downside of having a coach GM is that I think in other circumstances, they would be more open to doing it. I think Tibbs would be willing to go down with the ship more than a general manager in other circumstances would. And then Denver Portland, I think Adam's theory of Denver, you know, being a great, a great offense and then maybe putting it together defensively is, is sound, but I'm going to put Portland over Denver just because I believe in their defense. I believe in Terry Stotts to a point and then offensively they have plenty of talent. So I, I think that you could make arguments in almost not, – not any order in this. I think there are sub-tiers, but this is the closest division in the NBA, and I don't even – and by a significant margin. Okay, can I take a moment here and question?
2: <laughs>
0: Who has the highest – you made an
1: interesting comment. The Jazz have the lowest floor. Who has the highest ceiling? Okay, Steve. Okay, so this is what I want to talk about. I knew that was the answer. Thank you. Danny, you're awesome. We didn't even rehearse that. So for the final 41 games of the year, the Jazz were the best team in the NBA last year. I know. Right. Like, do we buy that? Like, yes, like, so, I do. I mean, like, so the Jazz defense from January 15th to the end of the regular season was a 98.5. Their differential was a 10.2. Gobert missed three of those games, played the rest of them. The Warriors weren't trying. The 76ers were a plus nine. The Rockets were a plus nine. The Raptors were a plus seven. And then nobody else was over a plus five. What do we think of that stretch? That 40-game stretch, like, is if you're plus ten, like if that's who they are, that's crazy, st- we're talking crazy stuff, right? This is why I have
2: them number one. I think, I, I do think that's who they are and I think they know who, and, and that's why I say I think they're a team that figured out who they are and refined that in the offseason.
1: Okay, but like how then? So Houston was sixty. What did Houston win last year? Sixty-five. I
2: think the number itself is probably you know there's some regression there, but the idea that they were one of the five or six best teams, I don't.
1: So so, plus plus ten or whatever, maybe it's plus eight. So so I I guess I'm not asking if they're one of the five or six. You know, I was with it, right? I lived it, and and it's a weird thing to live because the whole time we didn't think it was real, and now I'm looking back at it, and I'm trying to evaluate Utah if I wasn't the play-by-play announcer of the Jazz.
2: I think Donovan right. Mitchell I think I think he's incredible. I think he's going to have an even better year. The one area I would be surprised if he had as good of a year is he had I don't know how many, a dozen clutch games last year and I, as much as I don't believe in like this idea of clutch or whatever, he just ran so hot with knocking down all of those big shots that he could have a better statistical year, but it feel less impactful if he doesn't have eight game winners next year.
1: So let me just ask the question again because I'm not sure I even have an answer myself. 41-game stretch, plus 10. Rockets were plus 8.5 for the year last year. What do we think of that plus 10?
2: It's a little high. But, but not that high.
0: Yeah, I, I think the plus 10, you know, they're not a plus 10 team because I don't think anybody's a plus 10 team. <laughs> exactly. But could they be a plus 8? Like, I mean, the Raptors were plus, I think the Raptors right. were plus 8 the second half of last year. Like, the Raptors the, were I, 7.5 for the season, I think. Yeah, like I could see them being that good for sure. And that part that, that's part of the reason. That, that's a 60-win team. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what I'm saying.
2: <laughs> I think Utah's really good, especially in the regular
0: well, season. Well, so, so here is, to me, the overwhelming question with the Utah Jazz, which is, Defensively, I think if they can stay remotely healthy, they're top three, maybe even just the best defensive team. I mean, they're gonna be some really good defensive teams next year. So then the question becomes offense. Are they a top fifteen offense? Are they a top ten offense? That is going to define it because that's where you get into these bands. Are you a you know, like because if they're a top ten offense, they're probably a plus eight team and then they're a sixty-one team. If they're, you know, 13th or so maybe they're more like a plus six and then that team is still really really good and my instinct with the Jazz is that they're going to be better than league average on offense this upcoming year partially I I believe in Quinn Snyder's system partially I like their personnel I think that they're going to start figuring this out and really because that's where all of the improvement has to come for them there isn't any defensive improvement to make like you can't be you can't be better than the best defensive team in the league for a large portion of last season So if you're betting that they can be 12th or 10th or something in that range, so like I think second half last year, they were around 12th in offense, first in defense. They were that gave them the best point differential in the league, partially because the Warriors and Rockets gave up a little bit because they didn't need to. But It would not surprise me in the slightest if the Jazz were the number three team in the West. It wouldn't surprise me if they were number two if the Rockets take a step back this year. That's how good I think they could be in the regular season. I agree with that. The question I have on it is
1: their defense was so dominant in that stretch, right? 98.5. They were four points better than all but one other defense in the league. They were... Close to I think ten points better than league average at the time. I don't know if that's sustainable for 82 games. If that is sustainable for 82 games, they're going to win 55, 60 games, and they're going to be the number two seed.
2: Utah has an elite defensive coach, and they have a lot of I think extreme pluses on the defensive end. Obviously Rudy Gobert, but Ingles, Rubio, Exum. There's a lot of guys on that roster that can defend, and well, so and they'll have
0: Tabo hopefully this year. Like they'll they'll yeah. have the other Royce O'Neal. Like they have more guys to throw at defense than almost any other team in the league.
1: Every Agreed. single one of their players is an above average
2: defense player. Yep. So I, yeah. I think Utah will be very good, but you know one thing we should say here: Portland, in my opinion, was the worst team in the Northwest Division last year, and they won the division.
0: As wow, many, that's a that's a very interesting. They were three. Take. They were three
2: wins better than Denver. And tell me what their biggest injury was. With with Utah, they had Gobert miss a ton of games. Jimmy Butler missed that twenty-two game stretch. Millsap missed basically all but fourteen games of the season because when he came, he missed forty-four, and then came back and couldn't use his left hand to even rebound. Oklahoma City and Robertson, you're talking about. three. Three games. Portland just did not have that, and they won the division. And my whole point is, I think there are tiers. I think Utah, Oklahoma City is a tier. I think Minnesota has the highest, like up, Utah and De- Minnesota and Denver both kind of have a high upside, low floor. Uh, but Minnesota, Denver, Portland, I would put in the second tier. But the truth is, whichever team has the healthiest season will probably move up into a different tier just on virtue of, of them being healthy. So all these teams are close enough at least to talk about that way in my opinion.
1: Well on the back of what you're saying, Portland was the fourth best point differential team in the division last year.
2: But uh, but again, they ha- they were the luckiest team in terms of injuries and, uh, not, uh, and not only just on their own injuries they went on like a six game, their longest road trip of the year out east and they had every team's opposing best player miss on that road trip. So you talk about road trips and how those really can define a season, especially the, the season long ones. I mean they They got away from John Wall. They got away from Kimball Walker and Kyle Lowry, and to me, they just were not that good of a team, and this is why I'm so low on them. They didn't have any major injuries. they're to me, they're due for a regression. But even last year, just the point makes those four teams had the worst injury luck of anybody in the almost anybody in the entire NBA and Portland didn't have any. Uh, bad luck injury-wise.
1: Since you're all revved up, should I ask you whether you're concerned about the fact that Paul Millsap only took 20% of his shots last year at the rim?
2: No, not at all, because I actually... First of all, the numbers with Paul Millsap on the floor, regardless of what he did individually, when he was on the court, Denver was phenomenal. So, and especially when he was on the court with Nicole Jokic. So, for me, there was a moment last year... And right after he came back, about two weeks after he came back, where he sat down, Nikola Jokic averaged a triple double for the month of February. Then Paul Millsap returned, and they hit a rough patch. And Paul Millsap basically told him, "I'm here to be a defensive player. This is your team. Run the offense." And to me, this phase of his career, that's the best thing he could do. Is just say, "I'm going to be the defensive anchor, and that's where my and then and offensively, I'm just going to stand short corner, or I'm going to set screens on the weak side and knock down the the kick out 15 footer." And to me, that perfect. Defensively, he is, he is an incredible player.
1: 33 years old.
2: But I mean, again, I saw defensively what they did when he was on the court. And as bad as Denver was, when he was healthy and on the court, he was great. When he was unhealthy and on the court, he was very good. Uh, and, and Denver was elevated quite a bit defensively, so I I, I just think he, again it's another thing about clarity and who you are. I think he knows who he is on this team now, and I think the the the, the Nuggets know who they are as a team and, and what the pecking order is offensively, and and we saw that. They were phenomenal. If you look at some of the numbers down the stretch, they were really, really, really good. It's just unfortunate that they went 44 games without who was arguably their
1: second best player. Danny, if you're wondering, I'm just chuckling back here. I'm just revving him up. Just, <laughs> 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 <You're>
0: just... <laughs> just get him going, Danny. You're, you're such a troll sometimes, David. But yeah, I, I think that what's – so with Portland, I, I looked this up because I wanted to. CJ has missed five games in the last three seasons. Combined, like five five games in three seasons. Willard has actually missed about 10 a year for the last couple, but he's never missed more than nine games in a season. So he's been in that kind of – and I think some of that is right. maintenance, you know, just getting into it. And – while we think a lot of, like, especially defensively, you know, Portland, stats and the system is doing a lot of the heavy lifting, it is so much easier to have an effective offense when your best players are playing all the time. And, I mean, you, you, so with Portland—and with Portland last year, they were 15th in offense. I mean, you could, you could see that. They should be—I think they should be better than that if they can stay as healthy. So, but it's weird because, like, I could see them as being a team that could kind of frustrate the that kind of model stuff again. Just because—we'll we'll see what actually happens with it, though, but— yeah. And I mean, you think about where Portland is in, in terms of everything. Like if, if they're below, they're going to be, I they're going to be, they're win fewer. I think they're win, win fewer games than they did this past year. I mean, that would be really impressive if they won even high forties again, just because that's really hard to do. And we'll see, but going into that, and I think that ties in with the next question, which is how many teams from this division make the playoffs?
2: I think three, and and my prediction would be Utah, Oklahoma City, Denver, but I think Denver and Minnesota is basically a coin flip. In fact, they play twice in the last four games, including the last game, just like they did last year, and I would not be surprised if we had a repeat play in game down the stretch. So I I think three, I wouldn't be surprised if four, but I think one of Denver or Minnesota is gonna is going to just break bad this year and 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 miss out.
1: Denver and Utah both have brutal stretches of their schedule and both have really easy stretches of their schedule and Whether they're healthy in those time periods I think will matter a great deal to this question. I know we're talking about health, but I'm actually going to get specific. Utah starts with a brutal stretch, and Denver closes with one. And if either of them have a problem going into that stretch, they could have such poor impact. And frankly, if they don't take advantage, Utah should be favored in all but two or three of their final games from March 1st on. Um, They play Denver at Denver on the 28th of February. And from that point on, I think they'll not be favored at New Orleans, and they probably won't be favored – playing maybe at Washington and then at LA and that's it the rest of the way. Uh, so they have a really soft finish. I think four teams make the playoffs. I'm going to go with San Antonio and Portland out.
0: Yeah. I think it's going to end up, you know, all five teams in this division actually have a chance to make it for sure. Sure. I mean, I think you could argue that they're on, on talent. They're five of the eight best teams in the Western conference. Maybe even I'd have to really work the numbers. Five of the seven, it would be the, the Lakers are get complicated and all this kind of stuff because it's who actually plays for that team. But I think it's going to be four with three being a legit possibility just because the threshold in the West is going to be so high that it becomes who stays the healthiest. And so the gravity is when you have, when you're throwing more numbers into that mix than any other division, the health is going to affect, you know, more, that's going to affect your, your teams more likely because you just have more teams in the mix. So. It'll be, I think it'll be four, could be three. You know, so if it's four, then that probably means, you know, Houston, the Warriors are obviously in, and then probably the Lakers and San Antonio, it's probably the way I'm thinking about it right now, but I could easily see five teams of this division making it in just, it just depends on who stays healthy. But we can end this on the last question. I I like, I like doing it with this group and this is what led to the, I think this is what led to the Donovan Mitchell conversation last year. And I don't like defining this in terms of any specific level, like, oh, who's going to be an all-star or anything crazy like that, but it's just, what players in this division do you think? will break out so so be in a different level of performance or fame or whatever off of what they were last year
1: oh wow so Gary Harris I think is really really good I think his rim finishing is fabulous I think it's untalked about what a good rim finisher he is and so I think that would be one of the players that I would put on I think he'll continue to get better that rim finishing just opens up so many other things the only other player that I just I'm gonna throw out I'm being a homer here. I just think it's interesting. Ricky Rubio will play for the same head coach for the first time in six seasons.
2: That's so wild. That's a crazy stat.
1: There was kind of a – it felt kind of nutty from the Jazz when they traded for him, but they talked a lot about him having a second half of a career similar to Jason Kidd. And I think there might be a chance of that. Um, he's just such a good defense player. He gets every loose ball imaginable. If you run through his career, and it's worth mentioning, like Rubio feels like he's been around forever, but so in the 2011-12 season, which was his rookie year, right, He, I think that's when he tears his ACL. That's the only time he ever came back to the same coach two years in a row.
2: That's, it's pretty mind-blowing.
1: So I think there's a chance that with a coach who's empowered him and a team that he knows that he might be a better player. In the second half of the season, he averaged 15 points, five rebounds, six assists. He shot 44% from the field and 41% from three with an effective field goal percentage that was pretty high. And his true shooting percentage is 57. If that turns out to be who he is, he's a very different player than what he's been talked about.
2: I like it. You mentioned – Exum earlier, I think he's a guy that I've I've always been kind of high on, just we just haven't seen him very much. So, you know, maybe this is knock on wood, maybe this is the year we get to see a lot of him. He could be a breakout guy. I think Gary Harris is who he is at this point. I think marginal improvements last year was his I think his best year, but it wasn't so much better than the year before that. I think he's just adds a little bit more playmaking and a little bit more of a handle to his game, but the what he does I think will largely be the exact same. But Jamal Murray is the guy that, for me, his numbers off the catch and shoot have been so high. It's a lot of the other stuff that has been a work in progress. This is his first off season. He had off season surgery, two sports hernias last year, to so he really missed out on his entire summer. He's a guy that's in the gym three or four times a day. I think he makes a big leap, and then having Will Barton and Gary Harris in the lineup with him. I think he's just going to be able to get a lot of looks. Even having Isaiah Thomas, you're, they'll run some lineups with Jamal Murray and Isaiah Thomas, and those lineups will be terrible defensively, but offensively I think Murray himself will shine. Mitchell, I don't, it's not really a breakout year because he's already broken out, but I, I think he'll continue to be very good. Paul George, one of the things that makes me high on Oklahoma City is it's just so clear what this team is. They're Russell's team, they're Westbrook's team, they're Paul George as the, as the sidekick, and then everybody else has a role. And I think that make for Paul George that will make it easier for him. And then this one's corny. Oh, Jeremy Grant was my big guy. I meant to talk about him earlier. You mentioned him, Danny. I'm pretty high on him. I don't know that the fit is perfect now, but I really like his game. And I I think this could be a year where where he really shines. They don't have a ton of lineups because there's just not a lot of shooting. Ideally, you would have a little bit more shooting on the court for for him to shine. But I, I could see him making a leap. And then these, these two are corny, but I think Jokic and Towns are two players that are both somewhat, I know they're, they're popular and they're talked about a lot, but I think they're sneaky better than, than even what they're given credit for by analysts. And this Nuggets team in particular is more than it's a good team. It's a team designed to make Nikola Jokic look good. And I would not be surprised. Oh, I was gonna tell you this, this stat here that I think you'll find interesting. Last 15 games of the season, Jokic averaged 24 points, 12 rebounds, seven and a half assists on 50, 45, 87 shooting. Ooh. That's on 15-game sample size. And if you bring it back and just look at the entire second half of the season, he shot 52%, 46%, 84%. 46% from three on four attempts a game, 21 points, 11 rebounds, 7. And again, we're talking about half of the season of a sample size. I think Denver realized, for whatever reason, I think everybody else realized this was Jokic's team, but Denver really realized it about the halfway point of the season, and he was just incredible. You give him a whole other scoring weapon in Will Barton, and I would not be surprised if if he just had a, a really ridiculous statistical season.
1: Can I mention one thing you mentioned on Donovan? Can I jump in there for a second? Yeah. Because I probably didn't talk about him enough today considering who he is and what he did as a rookie and how historic his rookie year was. There is a huge room of improvement for him that if he does hit on this, hes I think he'll score 30 points a game in the NBA. And I understand what I just said. Dwayne Wade and Allen (laughs) Iverson, I understand exactly what I said. Now you'll listen to me after last year. He shot 29% off the bounce on three point shots last year and post all-star break he shot 30% on the above the break three. Mm-hmm. If those two numbers go up, he's unguardable.
2: Yeah. And and that and I I'm kind of banking on it, right? Because as good as he was last year, a lot of what made him good were those moments. Like he had a lot of like bad stretches, but he was just always good down down in the in the clutch and I think he makes a leap in those first 46 minute category. I don't know that he can make a leap in the in the final two-minute category because well, he was perfect.
0: I think he can – there are a couple other – like you know, he, Mitchell was at 62% at the rim last year, and while that's still a good number, like I think a lot of guys would be happy with that, I think he can improve off that because he's strong and he's a good finisher and he's so athletic – so if that number ramps up a little bit, I'd love to see him get to the line a little bit more. I mean, he's still these—he's already good at a lot of things, but I think he can get better. And I mean, it, the the keystone to him becoming like a, a theoretically like an MVP candidate would be that shooting off the dribble. If he can get to that level, also then that changes how you build around how you build around him offensively. And the Jazz have maintained a lot of flexibility moving forward. You know, maybe Rubio or XM are good enough that where you don't feel like you have to, but the possibility of doing it is very intriguing. And And I mean, Mitchell has that the reason why I've been gushing over him for probably about eight months now is because not what he is. I think what he is, is very intriguing. I mean, he was a wonderful player. He was, you know, a definitive player on one of the league's best teams in the second half of the season last year. But it's that when you carry what he did moving forward from his basically his age 21 season, like there's a lot more that he can do. And generally speaking, when guys who are young do really well, the argument is not should not be, oh, well, that's just because, you know, they're going to be that moving forward. It's guys who are really good when they're young get a lot better. They're just better than most other guys. Agreed. I should probably pick my own breakout guys. I mean, a lot of them are going to be Denver Nuggets just because partially their system is, I think, going to be a funhouse mirror. Their offense is going to be crazy. Jokic, as you brought up second half of last year, was, was bananas. Jamal Murray is not a traditional point guard, but I think that works really well for the Nuggets because he's so capable as a shooter that he could put up some crazy numbers and they don't really, you know, their defense is probably going to be marginal, but that's okay. Jamal Murray can, he can do that. And I think he competes more defensively Than some people give him credit for, and then I wonder really kind of like who's going to get the opportunities kind of on the margin in this division. Like I could see Royce O'Neal having a really good year, but again they have so many other options that it could be someone else. It's the same thing with kind of Portland's backups. Who's really going to break out? I still love Wancho, but I don't think Wancho is going to get opportunities unless it's the three, and then that's you know that's a whole different kettle of fish. And Something I wanted to bring up—it isn't necessarily a breakout candidate—but I just think that I just think this is a jaw-dropping stat. So th- this division, we talked about the story of continuity, and so I broke out kind of what I think are the projected starting fives for each one of these teams. And amazingly, with these five teams, all five players in their projected starting fives were on their team last year. So you can actually you have some numbers on these guys. And here's what's amazing: so Portland, Utah, and Minnesota generally stayed healthier. I mean, with with Denver, partial part of it's because they changed over Chandler for Will Barton and then OKC changing over Mello for Grant and then Robertson missing a bunch of the year. But Minnesota, they played, this is per cleaning glass, 2,260 possessions (laughs) with their projected starting five. That is more than the rest of this division combined and Jimmy Butler missed twenty three games last year. That is how insane this is. In just the games that he played, they had twice as many minutes than all these other projected starting fives. It's completely insane.
2: That's an incredible stat. And I don't. I honestly, you we you talked about continuity earlier. There's a razor thin line between continuity and and getting too stale. And who knows what's going on in that locker room? But I, I at least think that the continuity thing can be a huge boom for them. But it could also be a it can also be a negative because there are at least some signs of things getting stale with that group. This
1: is my Chris Paul theory. I have no idea if this is totally true. This is just always how I envision the Clippers. Okay, so let me clarify that this is not I mean, I do think that everything that was reported about the Clippers for seven years turned out in one year we found out was probably true with all the things that happened last year. But so Chris Paul's a yeller, right? Chris Paul yells at his guys all the time. We see it all the time. There were all these stories that the Clippers, like, didn't didn't like to practice, didn't get along well enough to practice, all these other crazy things. And I always felt like the Clippers would finish the season and the guys would come to training camp and everything would be fired up and it was all good and hunky-dory and we get along fine. We are all fired up and then Chris Paul would yell at him the first time and the guy would be like, holy crap, seven more That's crap. (laughs) Yeah, I love this theory. And that's what you have to be – I don't know what's going on in Minnesota. But when Jimmy Butler yells at Carl Anthony Towns for not rotating in the second practice, is Carl Anthony Towns going to be like, oh, crap, seven more months of this? Or is Carl Anthony Towns matured and going to say, all right, let's go. I'll rotate this time. My bad. No or, or
0: is jimmy butler when carl anthony towns doesn't rotate on the second day of practice going to be oh crap seven more months of this like it, right. can, it can go <laughs> it can go in either direction right. my theory with this division especially with minnesota and portland is that one of these teams is going to get behind pace at some yep. point and that it's going to be a very interesting question for their front office and for their and for the players themselves like are they, are they going to react to that and I think Portland is used sometimes for this because they've been so healthy. So it's like it feels like the the way this works out is that it's gonna be them. But I think it could be Minnesota too. Minnesota has some really challenging games at the beginning of the season. You know, they play San Antonio early, they play the Warriors and Portland and the Clippers and the Lakers as a four of a five game road trip early. Like that's in the first month of the season. I think they're good. I think they're gonna you know, they'll they'll make it through some of that kind of stuff, but if a team just kind of wobbles a little bit and they're like, oh crap, it looks like it's going to be like 47 wins again and we're 500, maybe we're a little bit below 500, then like, are, are we going to start to see some of the daggers come out? And it feels like because the stakes are so high with this division, I think all of these teams, while there could be context- Health-wise, that would change it. That missing the playoffs would be such a massive failure. That how they react to challenges is going to be so fun with this division.
2: This has all figured into my calculus with them, by the way. Is there's I, I'm just throwing out random numbers here. I haven't really thought about the numbers, but there's maybe a twenty percent chance that everything breaks right for them and their their talent wins out. And in that case, they're in that first tier with Oklahoma with Utah, and Oklahoma City in the Northwest. But there's so many other things that can go wrong. All the minutes that those guys play, there's an injury to Towns, an injury to Butler in there. There's a cold start. They get behind a little bit early. There's Jimmy Butler rumors swirling out that he wants to leave, and now do you have to get something of value for him? To me, there's just too many things that they all are low probability, I think, relatively, but there's so many of them that it it factors into how do I, I project their season going.
1: All right, I have a weird last question. Does anybody's opinion of any teams change throughout this conversation? No, I don't think so. Maybe I wasn't as researched as you guys. <laughs> uh,
0: not not particularly. I think that I've been thinking about it over the last couple weeks with these teams, but I'm very interested in kind of what happens with a few of the like big question marks, like Minnesota's defense. Like if Minnesota, all of a sudden, if they're... 20th or 18th in defense, like as as Adam was saying, they were kind of getting into the ceiling plays here. Hell, if they got to 15th, they'd be a ridiculous team. But in terms of the thought process, I mean, what, what's challenging with them is they're all so close. So I think sometimes we're doing more splitting hairs. and It becomes down to random chance like clutch play and who's out at the – David talked about the idea of who's out at – like are, are players out during the easy stretch or the hard stretch that I think we focus on the, on the macro because the macro is what's important. But it can be this like chance element that's in play. But I'm, I'm really interested.
1: You guys might have changed my opinion on Oklahoma City. You might change my opinion on Utah a little bit too. Um, <laughs> you might have changed my opinion on Oklahoma City. I keep looking at that depth chart after Adam brought it up, and I'm like, if anything goes wrong with either Robertson, obviously Russell or Paul, but like they're all of a sudden they're starting Jeremy Grant and Alex Abrines, so they're starting Jeremy Grant and Terrence Ferguson, right? Like that's in a in a. Con- in a conference where we're splitting hairs and where teams are loaded, where Portland and San Antonio are projected to not make the playoffs by Westgate, wow, I don't know. Maybe Russell and Paul George are that great. But also Paul George is history is that he is not – an 82-game player. He has months of hotness and yeah, months true. of incredible droughts. And so, like, I don't know. I just... Oklahoma City, who... I, I, I still think Oklahoma City is going to be a top-five defensive team. So that carries me through believing in them. But it's an interesting idea that if Robertson's not right or there just got a lot of men like, they are relying on, I li- like on some funky people.
2: I like looking at some of these rosters in terms of how many guys would just kill – if they got hurt, would just completely ruin them. And I think for Oklahoma City, there's like four. If Paul George got hurt for an extended period, you know, 20 games, that's that would kill them, Westbrook clearly. But even Adams and as we saw at Robertson. If either of those guys miss, the team is they can survive for a game or two, but I don't think they can survive those. You know, Nerlens Noel at the center, starting center, playing thirty minutes a night, they can't survive that. Even Jeremy Grant. So
0: well, and uh, so, so can I tie in with that. That's also the big reason why I don't like them spending the money they did on Schroeder because right. Schroeder is not good enough to replace Wessel Westbrook yeah. and. Theoretically, even a mediocre wing is going to provide more value in, in in the case of injury. Like they just don't have that many options. I mean, you're looking at Patrick Patterson as a potential fallback, Ferguson, all these type of guys. And I think that that's the kind of the problem with OKC as they sit right now is like at full strength they they could be really interesting. They could be awesome, but they're teetering on the edge of so many different things. And what's scary with Russ is, I mean, when he's when he's available, he's you know an 82 game guy, but he has like when when he has these injuries it's you know like 20 or 30 or 40 games and that's happened i think 3 times in his career and so all i don't necessarily worry about any one of them i mean patrick beverly's probably not going to run into his knee again heaven forbid But you have all those things running together. These guys are getting a little bit older. You know, they're still going to have to push hard. They're going to have to push for every win. I'm more worried about it with them than like, let's say Utah, because Utah just has a bunch of other guys. They have, and it's also not only about who you lose that it screws you, but also who can take up a larger workload in case somebody goes down. And OKC, other than maybe Paul George, if Wes was out and Russ, if Paul George was out, they don't really have any of those guys. Like There isn't a place for their usage to get sopped up. Yep. <laughs> yep. What? And I guess it's the same thing with Portland, too. It's just that their guys have stayed healthier, so we don't think about it as much. But, like, yeah, I mean, if, if Dame or CJ missed 20 games, I mean, is Evan Turner going to fill that void? What but the at heck least, happens with that team?
2: At least they only have two guys, because I think, like, if Nurkic misses, they, they can replace him. And Turner, same, same thing. Minnesota, I think, has two. Butler and Towns. You, Denver, know,
0: the, you know the other guy for Portland would be Al Camino. I think they would actually have some real trouble if he missed. You know, they, they were able to deal with it a little bit last year but it's just it just makes it hard because it, it again they have to rely i, I on.
2: just mean they could they could stay afloat they would obviously sure. be much worse but
0: yeah you're you know, talking it, about injuries that like devastate you
2: if Jokic got hurt for denver i mean they're gonna win 30 games next year so uh, so i think denver has one i think and and, and maybe two if you and paul milsap is the second one M- minnesota two. portland i think one and a half. CJ, if he's gone for 10 games, I think they can stay afloat. If he's gone for more than that, they're, they're completely done. But OKC has those four guys that, to me, completely
1: changed their team. We probably should have talked about Zach Collins when we talked about players who have a chance to be different at the end of the year. That's a great one. You're absolutely right.
0: Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how Collins fits in, like, now that he's straight up the backup center, with whether he can really get in the Stott system and and become kind of like a a Nurk replacement. I mean, Nurk might miss some time, so they're going to need Zach Collins to do that. I think Collins' offensive game is... In certain ways, if, if you can convince him not to take as many shots, he can be a, a more effective use than Nurkic because Nurkic, like when Nurkic is on, he's awesome. This is something Adam could talk about, but he, like, he has to take a certain amount of possessions basically all the time. And so I, I'm intrigued by it. I think Nurkic is a meaningfully better player now, but Collins can be a part of that mix and Portland still needs forwards in the worst way, but I think they're okay at center. Anything else? I mean, we've talked plenty. Anything else you guys feel like we need to discuss? possibility that jimmy butler just straight up like knifes somebody in the locker room of minnesota
2: (laughs) god i'm good i'm I'm good as well
0: well thank you guys so much for taking time always a pleasure see you guys thanks so much thank you so much to david and adam for taking the time to come on you can Listen to David Locke on every Utah Jazz game. You can also listen to Locked On NBA, Locked On Jazz, or anything else in the Locked On Podcast Network. But he does an incredible amount of work and an incredible level of quality of work as well. You can also follow him, of course, on Twitter at Locked On Sports, Adam Maris runs Denver Stiffs. He also hosts the Locked on Nuggets podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. That's how you spell his name. And really love talking with both those guys and built a rapport and got into some some really interesting topics. I mean, I think that the way this worked out of using the Northwest as a jumping off point to talk about center defense, talk about the importance of defense overall, was a great one. And those are conversations I love having on Real Jam Radio, and so was thrilled to have that opportunity. My instinct is I'm going to do another one or two of these unless something comes up. I, I have an open invitation to a series of guests, so we'll see if somebody wants to come on outside of that, because now there are three left to do, and there's still probably about six, seven weeks left of what I consider the offseason. So definitely going to try to do over-unders again this year. So that'll take up some of it. And then other guests as they come up. That's the fun of Real Jam Radio is it's a little bit of a different thing in terms of time sensitivity. And we're in the part of the NBA season where things aren't super time-sensitive anyway. So you can definitely check it out. If you're looking for other podcast content, and a lot of people are, you can check out. Nate and I did a massive dunked on we're only doing two episodes a week so they're ending up being longer just because of the structure of it so we put out a three hour and 19 minute episode with some help from liam doyle our intern because he had some of the teams for summer league we went through 21 of the 30 teams for summer league the ones we hadn't done before a lot of good content there i have a lot of written work that is in process right now i'm kind of putting together some different thoughts also had some stuff on terms of pick protection and setting the table for some of my off-season work for the athletic it's already up now and a bunch of other stuff. Follow me on Twitter at Daniel Rue, if you want to find out when things come out. It's a good way to do it. If you want to support this show, lots of different ways. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing, but it's great if it's Apple Podcasts. It's even better if you do both leave a rating, leave a review in, in your place and in Apple Podcasts, should that not be your podcast player, because it is still so important in our industry. Likewise, subscribing, downloading every episode super important because then you can get into habit, helps with our numbers, everything like that. And also you can spread the word. Tell people online, tell people in person, hey, you you might like this episode. You might like this podcast overall. There are still people who don't know about this. Word of mouth is exceedingly important. And then the biggest thing you can do with this podcast or any other that has advertisers is check out our advertisers. So betonline.ag and the promo code there for a fifty percent sign up bonus is podcast one, and that's the number one. So p o d c a s t, and then the number one. Quip toothbrushes, fantastic! What I use multiple times every day. Getquip.com slash realgm. Get you a free refill pack and their stuff is so reasonably priced. It's amazing toothbrush at a great price. And those refill packs are amazing because you just get in, in the good habits. That's what it's about. And then Trucar, great place to buy new and used cars. I don't know exactly where next week's episode is going to go. I'm guessing not too much is going to happen in the in the world of basketball. It's my instinct. So that means probably another division pod, but we'll see how it works. It just depends on what guests say yes and when. So we'll make it happen. But you can check out this. That's why you subscribe and download. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
1: Angie's list is now Angie, your home for everything home. With Angie, you could cross your next project off your to-do list before this ad is even over. Just tell them what you need and they'll handle the rest. Sending a top pro to get it done. Or browse reviews, compare quotes from pros, and connect instantly all for free. For everything from routine maintenance to a dream remodel. Because however you want your project done, they'll get it done. Download the app or go to angie.com. That's A N G I.com to get started. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep the facility running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond in Buffalo and Maria in Miami. Jules in Minneapolis and Stan in central Indiana. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with experienced branch staff at over 250 locations so you get the product you're looking for. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.